Was there a, a light switch moment for you in high school or even before that that, that was the, the defining moment as far as joining the Navy and, and in particular becoming a SEAL? I didn't think that, you know, I was capable to be a part of an organization that was held in that high of a regard. Straight to Bud's, Bud's class 278. After SQT, I went to SEAL Team 8. We shifted locations and we went to North Africa. That embassy had gotten hammered, dude. We spent a couple of months there doing good work. Where did the running bug come from? In the military, I guarantee you, you're being challenged physically and mentally. I realized that I was going to need something else in my life that challenged me in that way. There's a certain type of race that happens within the ultra running community. And it's called a last man standing race. You have about 100 people show up and the whistle goes off. You run until only one person's left. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent 12 years as a U.S. Navy SEAL. He's a co-founder of the Three of Seven Project, which is an organization that helps people master their body, soul, and spirit to become a complete human being. He's an entrepreneur. He's an ultra runner. He does make Forrest Gump look like Lieutenant Dan, and his beard has its own weather system. Ladies and gents, welcome to the stage, Chad Wright. Mike, thank you so much for having me, brother. Uh, you know, I have been a fan of the Mike Drop podcast Is that right? for quite a while. Sure. Yes, you didn't even know it. I didn't. But I've been listening to really? you uh, a, for a long time, man. That's uh, flattering. You have just a, a very smooth and calming voice. You really ask great questions. You get right down to the hard topics. And uh, I'm really honored to be here, dude. Well, I never thought I would have a seat at the Mic Drop podcast. Well, What's well, uh, I mean, that, that's humbling as hell to hear you say that. As far as the voice thing, I do uh, I do read audiobooks for Penthouse Letters, so that that is part of. No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I had you going. Uh, no, I I, uh, I appreciate you being here. Um, thank you for the for the kind words. It's uh, it's an honor to have you here. I've been been following your path for for a couple of years now as well and uh, have marveled at what you have going on so it uh, the feeling is absolutely mutual i appreciate it thank you brother thank yeah. you so much yeah absolutely you might not know it but I, I was also a dog man for a long time is that right myself yes before uh, before the navy or well before and actually a little time while i was active duty um when i grew up and i know this isn't on your uh, your questionnaire there i bet it is <laughs> when i grew up i actually grew up doing something that a lot of your listeners probably won't understand it's called raccoon hunting yeah all right i'll bet, I'll bet more of them do than you'd think okay well <laughs> I, you know it's a dying sport yeah. and um and we I, I was a dog man you know we had coon hounds uh, ever since i was young and it's a lot of work to raise and train yeah. good quality dogs yeah and that's another thing that gives me a, a great appreciation for who you are, because well, I, I know that. the amount of talent that takes. Yeah. You're training a different style of yeah. dog than we trained, well, but nonetheless, training that dog, a lot of things probably cross over. Yeah, I, I would say more things than not, honestly. I mean, the one of the unique and, and kind of interesting things I think about uh, dog training across the board is is there's not a huge difference between 
basic obedience, hunting, uh, you know, military work, obedience, you know, agility, mm-hmm. you name it. I mean, the, to me, the, the process from A to B is very, very similar, irrespective of what A and B are. You know, the, mm. the principles that you're using in terms of consistency and nonverbal communication, body language and reinforcement and consequences for uh, certain undesirable behaviors and, and just being super consistent and predictable to the dog so that they know what to expect. That's all the exact same, no matter what, what you're teaching them to do, you know. Yep. Uh, and similarly, even with breeding, you know, being hyper selective in terms of the, the traits that you're trying to acquire in a breeding program, uh, the way that you select them are no different for that matter. It's not even species specific. I mean, if you're talking laying hens or dairy cattle or, uh, you know, any, any breeding programs, even in zoos uh, where they're trying to maintain a, a certain character uh, trait <clears throat> set, um, you know, it, it's all the exact same, you know, g- genetics are genetics and, and how you select for them is uh, is largely largely the same kind of irrespective of it, but uh, but that's that's really neat. I, I'll definitely definitely get into the into the coonhound stuff because that uh, I, I'm fascinated by it. I mean, I did some hunting for a number of years with uh, with a few different breeds of dogs for uh, for hog hunting and stuff. So I I have a, a serious appreciation for uh, for that. No no two ways about it. And I actually I learned a lot uh, from a from a conditioning and and nutrition and. Um, and breeding theory, and even from a veterinary standpoint, because those dogs get hurt quite a bit more mm-hmm. than uh, than police and military dogs. So a lot of what I I uh, know and and have applied, even within you know police and military realms, a lot of it is has driven from bird dog hunting as a kid, and then uh, hog dog hunting in my uh, kind of early early adult years. That's awesome, yeah. man. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, it's it's remarkable. And you mentioned you mentioned that breeding. The breeding as an aspect of being a a dog man or a dog handler, breeding is something that I don't think people can really appreciate. So the guy that I was mentored by when I was young in the dog business, um, he was a breeder. Yeah. That was his gift. He could look at a, a hound and he could pick out traits that he, that other people just would not see. Yeah. I mean, everything from the way the dog's feet contacted the ground sure. to its back to its and and I it it amazed me. And he was able. It took him about two decades yeah. to actually breed one of the best lines of coonhound in the nation. Mm-hmm. But that is a a real skill skill in and of itself absolutely within the whole dog breeding and hand uh, dog business handling and all that yeah yeah i have a huge appreciation for the the breeding that goes into creating uh, a dog that is meant to do a specific job yeah absolutely and and at, at a high level no matter what uh discipline you're talking about you know whether it's any any type of hunting or again police military work or even you know search and rescue I mean, you name it to get it at that level where where the dogs have both the genetics to do the work and then somebody that has the the competency training wise to get them to that level i mean you have to have both people talk about nature versus nurture and it's not an either or it's it's you have to have both of them at a, at a high level to to operate in in that realm but um but from the breeding standpoint, like that shit doesn't happen by accident. No, you know? I mean, it's that's, years and yeah, years, man. Yeah, de- decades of of funneling genes with people who are are brilliantly talented at at both having an eye for a dog, and then the other part that I think a lot of people don't want to talk about, but it is the reality of of maintaining 
genetic lines is is being non-kennel blind and honest with yourself on what you're producing. Yeah. Most people just like with their own kids, like, Oh, it's the next fucking Brett Favre. No, it isn't. He sucks. You know, like just level with yourself. Yep. I mean, you, you can watch auditions at American Idol to, to see how woefully inadequate human beings are at evaluating their own offspring. Uh, you know, <laughs> so, uh, but, you, but it's the same way with dogs. You, know, you have like, to call heavily. You have to, you, you have know? to now, call heavily. Yeah. And that, that doesn't, you know, most people hear that word and they think, you know, that it means that you're taking the life of every dog that doesn't make it. And that's, that's not necessarily the case. Yes, there are some programs that do that, but there are a lot that don't, uh, you know, for me myself, you know, if the, if puppies don't make the cut, they get either spay or, or neutered and, and given away to, you know, farm farms down the street that want, you know, a companion or more friends of mine that just want a, an active companion or, or what have you. Yep. Uh, you know, so there, there is a right way to do it. But the, the key point is, is that you have to, the, the calling to me, where the, we're kind of the, the, the spirit of that word needs to be applied is that you're removing those genes from, from the gene pool. Exactly. You know, how, however you're doing it yep. is that those aren't being entered into, into progeny uh, generations down the, down the pedigree. And, and that's where most people I think fail miserably is, is they, they mistake personality and, um, and relationship attachment that they have with an animal for quality. Oh yeah, and there's a marked difference, you know. So, um, but anyway, this isn't a, a dog podcast. I promise. Uh, You're a professional, but, man. But, I, I, uh, I like hearing you talk uh, about this. This is a testament to how how much of a professional you are. Oh well, so I, I appreciate it. Uh, we'll we'll definitely get uh, get into it as well. I do want to cover some of the stuff that you've been doing, and uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll. Yeah, pe- don't let pe- me derail you, Mike. Some, uh, I could talk dogs yeah. all day, brother. <laughs> you and me both. That's maybe that's a bad combination. Uh, <laughs> What uh, what is, do you have a most memorable uh, running experience that that stands out above all others? I'm sure they all are in their own way, but is there one that stands out as being kind of the uh, apex of of your career running running experience? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I I have yeah I have many, but I guess most memorable was probably the last race that that I ran. Um, there's a certain type of race that happens within the ultra running community and it's called a last man standing race. That's the format, right? So uh, you have a bunch of ultra runners show up and um, there's a loop. And in this particular race, it's a one mile loop with 350 something feet of elevation gain and loss per mile. That adds up quick, right? Uh, you have about a hundred people show up and the whistle goes off and you essentially, without going into intense detail, you run until only one person's left. Um, that race, uh, the particular race I'm talking about, it's called the Mid-State Mile. And uh, the first year they did it was in 2020. 2020, when coronavirus hit, all, you know, ultra running is a pretty hippie sport. Yeah. And, um, you know, the hippies were all about coronavirus and shutting everything down so all the daggone races canceled well the people who put on mid-state mile good friends of mine you know they're rednecks just like me and uh, they said we're putting on a freaking race man so people can have a chance to get out of their house and come out here and run and do what they love to do and i showed up in 2020 and i won in 2020 i ran 30 hours straight um against a very worthy competitor got down to me and one other guy uh the other guy's name's greg armstrong he runs for the American National Ultra Running Team, and it was an epic battle to the finish. There's a video of Greg 
collapsing as he comes across the finish line because his body, his mind was is stronger than his body. And so his body's shutting down and he's collapsing. And it was just unbelievable. And um, I went back in 2021 and uh, won the race again. And that's probably, it's, that's as of now, pretty much the apex uh, of my running career uh, in 2021 at that race, I ran for 38 hours straight, 122 miles. And with the elevation gain and loss per mile, I accumulated 37,700 feet of climbing and the same in descent. So um, Mount Everest, for reference, is about 29,029 feet. Yeah. So uh, we were, you know, way over that. And, um, you know, it was, it was just an, it was, it was awesome, man. I mean, it was an epic battle and, uh, to pull that off two, two years in a row, that felt good. Um, but there's also a little, a little bit of pain attached to that because, you know, a last man standing race in the mid state mile particular, you can only run as far as the other person there that the other best person there is going to take you mm. because once everybody quits you have to stop running and uh at 38 hours i was all systems go i felt like i could <laughs> run another 38 hours yeah. now that might not be true you, you never know when you're pushing that deep into uh the human capability something's eventually going to break in the body and take you out yeah. um but it was an epic battle, but I left there hungry, man, because I felt like I could have went a lot further and I had to stop running. Um, but that's probably the pinnacle, probably the most difficult uh, ultra running endeavor that I have encountered. And tons and tons of lessons came out of that, man. Yeah. Is there a, uh, I mean, if you had to guess, I mean, I know it's, uh, it is a guess, but how much farther do you think you had in you? Um, I, well, I felt at, at the end of that race, like I could have ran infinitely. Really? Um, and, and again, that's not true, but that's what I was telling myself about myself. Yeah. I, and it's a, you, you know, Mike, in the teams, uh, we do something called a function check on our weapon, uh, before we go out and, and, and do whatever we need to do. And we go through that weapon systems. We, we make sure everything is functioning properly and um, and I do that on my body when I when I'm out running every you know 15 20 minutes I'll do a function check I'll go from the bottom of my feet all the way work my way up through every aspect of my body and uh, mental check all the way to the top of my head and uh, all systems were go the function check was good and um, I don't know how much further I could have went I wish I I wish I would have found it yeah. Uh, was there a disparity between the first year and second year time-wise that, uh, that you ran, or was it pretty, pretty similar? First year was 30 hours. Okay. Second year was 38 hours. Oh, wow. uh, I would have liked to have went 48 hours just to yeah. say I ran for two days. Yeah. I was kind of disappointed <laughs> in that. Um, I, I have to know where, where is your mind at during 38 hours of running? Is it almost like a single point of meditation where, where you're laser focused on a, on a singular thing, or is it all over the place? Is it somewhere in between? Can you walk us through your, your the inside of your head during that time? Yeah. Um, so I try to keep my mind simply where right here, where my feet are. Uh, 
Now, the human mind is a hard thing to master. Uh, it's human nature to want to think ahead. Um, so I'm constantly aware of where my mind is and, and at intervals, and especially when it gets really difficult, because you go through low points. Uh, you run that long, you're going to hit low points. And um, I'll, I'll catch myself, I'm self-aware enough to know where even if my mind starts to drift 10 minutes ahead, and maybe I'm thinking, okay, when I come off of this loop, I'm going to do a shoe change. And I start thinking about how good it's going to feel to do a shoe change. Um, I will tell myself out loud, Chad, stay present. Like you, you can't think about that, man. You have to think about the very next step that you're going to take here on this trail. Uh, and, and that's for really two reasons. It's because if you overextend yourself mentally, it's going to crush you. Uh, it's just more than you can handle when you're doing something extremely difficult. And especially you don't know when the end is. Uh, Buds is very similar to that. I believe the number one reason people quit Buds is because they overextend themselves mentally. Um, and same in ultra running. So uh, it's just, a, it's, it's, it's key, man. What, uh, is there a most distracted you've been? Like what's the, in both of those races, where, where did your mind go the furthest from where it should have been? And what were you thinking about? Um, Is anything so yeah, that, that's a, that's actually a really great question, dude. That's why I love this podcast. You ask <laughs> questions that nobody else ever asks. Um, I'm just, I'm a, a, a dork and I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, where, when my mind gets furthest from in that particular race in 2021, when it got furthest from where it should have been is when it got down to just me and one other competitor, everyone else had quit. Um, and and it was just me and this one other guy for a long, long time, just going head to head, loop after loop after loop. And when I started to uh, see a little weakness in him, when I started to see little chinks in his armor and, and you know, his emotions start to flare up, um, he started belching and farting and, you know, slamming cokes, just trying to stay alive and get another loop. I knew the end was near, but I was still in the fight. Like I hadn't, I hadn't won yet, yeah. but I knew the end was near for him. And so when that happens, it's really, really difficult not to start uh, counting your eggs or your chickens before they hatch, right? It's yeah. really, really hard to, to stay there and say, I got to stay locked in, man. You know, the same, the similar thing happened in 2020 when I was running against Greg and me and Greg had battled it out last two guys in 2020. We battled it out for hours and um, Greg came across the finish line and collapsed. You just don't see people push themselves that far in, in normal life. And when you witness another human pushing themselves to that level, it can be really, really emotional. Sure. So a similar thing happened when I saw that happen. I knew the end was near. This was probably going to be the last loop. Um, and when I saw Greg collapse, I wanted, I tried to talk to him, but I almost started crying. I could, I could feel the emotion welling up in my throat. And I immediately had to remember, 
part of our creed that says my ability to control my emotions and my actions, regardless of circumstances, what sets me apart. And I had to say, I can't overextend myself emotionally here. Um, this is something to behold, this man pushing himself to this limit. But I'm still in the fight because this dude may bounce back. And if I allow these motions to well up and I begin to, to tear up and cry uh, from witnessing this, it's going to steal energy from me that I might potentially need because he might come back from the dead. And so uh, there at the very end, I, I think I, I think that's pretty common across the board. When you can see the finish line, yeah. that's when you end up getting hurt or yeah. screwing something up. Well, you see it in a lot of professional sports where, you know, especially football, like guys think they've scored and they trip or, you know, they start celebrating 10 yards out, you know, whatever. It's like it's the classic classic example of that, I think, uh, that, that most people can relate to. Yeah. From a rule standpoint wise, what, uh, what are you allowed or not allowed to do in that, in that regard with, with a competitor, if they fall, like if you try, if you stop and try to help them up, do you, do you now technically quit also because you stopped running or how does that work? Yes. So, uh, the way the race works is that one mile loop, you go out on the loop and you have 20 minutes. Um, and, and so usually I would come in off of that loop within about 17 minutes, uh, which would give me three minutes to fill my water bottle up and shove some food in my mouth. If, if you are not back in the starting corral before the 20-minute whistle, oh, okay. for the next whistle, you, for the next loop, you're out of the race. Okay. So it's a brutal cutoff, and, and they really adhere to that. If you're not standing in the start line, uh, starting corral, you're, you're dropped from the race. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, man, that's, uh, that's such an interesting, um, niche within our society that uh, is, is pretty rare. I'm assuming you're familiar with uh, the Leadville 100. Have you, have you run that or? I haven't ran Leadville. Uh, I'm, I really enjoy the ultra running culture on the East coast. Uh, I haven't done a lot of West coast races. Um, East coast ultra runners are real gritty, nasty beer drinking uh just gr i mean great people salt of the earth I, yeah. i'm not putting them down like yeah. you know what i mean and uh and and uh west coast ultra running is a different culture it's it's a little more high performance it's a um a little dry for me i like culture man yeah and uh, so that's where i do most of my racing and the last man standing format is the perfect format for me because I have never, ever in my whole, my whole life, including to this day, been the fastest, the strongest, or the smartest. <laughs> I never, ever have I been either of those three things amongst a group of humans. But let me tell you, if it comes down to just, I just have to keep moving, just pure grit, I'm probably going to outlast you. Yeah. And that if I can lean into that, I call it grit, if I have an arena where I can lean into that purely, uh, I can really wreck some people, dude. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it sounds like it. Are, would you be open to doing a you versus Goggins Navy SEAL Foundation charity fundraiser uh, type of thing? You know, I've actually, I've actually mentioned that, man. I, I think that, um, you know, that's one thing that I think is lacking amongst our brotherhood uh, here on the outside Man, we don't come together enough. Uh, and if we could put something like that together, where you took um, you took a, a a bunch of guys out here that are influential 
and uh, we did a head-to-head, last man standing be awesome. type of uh, type of race. We could, I think, raise millions of dollars to help families yeah. and to help guys that need to get help, which there are many. Yeah, there are many. Yeah, I think that would be absolutely amazing. Um, we we'd have to do it for the right reasons, and I think that's yeah. the right reason to do it. Yeah, agreed. Well, let's. Uh you know, I mean, I know we, we both know, know a few people. I think, uh, you know, a- after this, we'll see if we can uh, work something out or at least uh, shake some trees and see if we can get it going. <laughs> That'd be a blast, yeah. man. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. Uh, we'll definitely get back into the in, into some more running stuff. Uh, it's supposed to be the lightning round, but uh, if if it gets off track in a in a good way, I always let it. Uh, why are we here as human beings? What is your take on that? Wow, that's a deep question. Why are we here as human beings? Um, I can tell you why I'm here as a human being to to serve uh, the Creator of the universe, and that is Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the that's what drives me to do everything that that I do. Yeah. That's that's the the foundational element of every aspect of of what I do in business, what I do in life. Period. Is that something that uh, it would be safe to say that you grew up with, or is it something that you grew into? I actually uh, found out or had a, gained the understanding of who Christ was in 2012. Um, obviously, growing up in the South, you you had heard. Um, the gospel of Jesus, but uh, it never really meant much to me until 2012. Do you uh, do you mind sharing what that moment was that uh, that led you to that? Yeah, totally. No, I don't mind at all. Um, and by the way, listeners, I'm I'm not a I'm not a churchy guy or a, a, a anything like this. This is just I'm so passionate about this because it changed the trajectory of my entire life and who I am. Uh, when, when people say you're born again, that's literally, it sounds so corny, but that's what it was to me. Um, it was the death of the old man, uh, and the rebirth of something, uh, totally different. Mm -hmm. And so I was on deployment in 2012 and we were staying in a, uh, kind of like a barracks or a building and the, just to cut to the chase, uh, I believe it was in, inhabited by some sort of demon, uh, and weird stuff started happening. And the initial thing I can remember was laying in my bed one night, and something hit my door, jolted me awake, and then I could hear voices up and down, echoing kind of up and down the hallway. And um, it there was a lot of fear attached to that moment. It freaked me out. I got up. Uh, obviously, it was just me and a couple of the guys standing there. I got up, looked around, nobody was there, walked over to, the, to, my, to my buddy's room. They were passed out asleep. I thought, man, that was odd. And, and uh, things like that continued to happen along with this really, really heavy feeling of oppression, a fear and oppression. Uh, and, um, and I didn't know what to do about it. So it went on for a few weeks and literally just like sleepless nights and, and uh, it wasn't just me experiencing it. And um, 
I called my little brother back stateside, and he said, let me put you in touch with my friend, and his friend called me, uh, and he said, hey, man, just put me on speakerphone. Let, let me walk around this place, and I was just at a loss of, uh, of how to combat this thing. We understand warfare, but very rarely do you encounter some sort of enemy, if you want to call it that, that you don't know how to kill it. Where, where were you at on deployment? Like what? It was in Europe. In Europe. Yeah. yeah. And um, when, uh, when I called him, put him on this speakerphone, he walks around this place and he's praying, which was re- weird to me. I'd never seen anything like this happen before. And, and praying in the name of Jesus. And uh, when we got done, I hung up the phone and thought, well, is what it is and uh, shortly thereafter realized total peace had returned to this place so I saw an example of this strange warfare uh, part take place in this spiritual realm and I don't know it was the first time that I was like okay there's some there's some power here there's obviously some authority in that's that's attached to the name of this person, Jesus Christ. And so I, I got my hands on a Bible and I read the first sentence of the Bible and it made sense to me. Um, you know, in the first sentence of the Bible, it accounts for the three components that create the universe. In the beginning, there's time. God created the heavens, there's space, and the earth, there's matter. Everything that we see is composed of time, space, and matter. <clears throat> and I went on to study the life of Jesus Christ and who he said he is and consider the evidence um, that point to the fact that he was telling the truth. I mean, real evidence. Telling the truth about who he said he was and that he actually was crucified and he actually rose from the dead. Now, if you come to the conclusion that somebody 2,022 years ago, which, by the way, we count time off of the birth of this man, which is another really strange thing. But if you come to the conclusion that 2,000 years ago, a Jewish man said he was God, and he was crucified, and he rose from the dead, you got to do something with that, man. And, and, you know, not everybody comes to that conclusion. But I believe there's a lot of evidence um, that, that, that can point you to that as the actual truth. Yeah. And then as I've continued to, to just dig into my understanding of Scripture and the Bible, uh, it's enhanced my life greatly. It's reflected, uh, it's reflected so many things about myself to myself. It's like a mirror. It's, it's the best, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable book. I've studied the book now for, the Bible that is, for over a decade, and it still continues to show me things about myself that I would have never known without it, and uh, it's just the most important thing in my life, man. Do you, uh, do you have a recollection of what, what the gentleman on the phone said? Do you remember, like, word for word what he said? I don't, it, it don't remember word for word. He was essentially, um, and, and I, I, I learned a lesson, you know, when, when we talk about prayer, there are, uh, there are two ways I believe we can speak into um, the spiritual realm 
uh, and and one is we are praying to Jesus, right? And, and whether that is um, thanking Him or praising Him or, or requesting from Him something that we need uh, to move forward in service of Him. And the other way is we can actually, we actually have the authority to speak against um, spiritual hosts of wickedness. We have the authority to do that. And essentially, that's what he was doing. He was using the authority that he knew he possessed uh, to speak out against this um, spiritual force of evil or wickedness, whatever it was. So it's a different type of... um, of prayer that he was using, yeah. um, and, and you know, I still do. I still do the same thing to this day. When, when you know, plenty of times in life, I, uh, I feel like you know, things are speaking lies into my head, and and you you feel like you're something is attacking you. You feel this burden, and uh, man, I'll speak out against it because it's interesting because the Bible says that when you accept Christ, he actually comes and lives in you. And it's really hard to understand that, that the Holy Spirit of Christ inhabits you, your body, right? Um, And, you know, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. Scripture tells us that. And so by the very fact that he is inhabiting you, that authority that has been given to him, in turn, can be utilized by you in everyday life. Yeah. Do you do you have a opinion, position, uh, perspective on the religions throughout the world and how they fit into what you believe? Uh, whether it's contrasting it or like, how do you reconcile that? Yeah, that's um, that's a very interesting question and. I've been asked. I was actually asked this question yesterday, and I will skip it then. No, no. the 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 response is um, the the truth the it's the truth that is in the Holy Bible. Like I believe the Bible is essentially a blueprint for how we should live our personal lives, how we should conduct ourselves in business, how we should conduct ourselves in marriage, um, how we should conduct ourselves as a society. It is a blueprint. And it's you can't dispute the fact that the principles therein work, right? They, they actually work. Um, and you have probably been to some, some Muslim countries um, maybe some Hindu or Buddhist countries, you've been to other nations, and, and that, the, the, the principles that they adhere to, the book that they're reading from, the things that their religion tells them about how they should live their lives and conduct themselves. I want you to look around you next time you're in one of those places and ask yourself, how's that working out for them? So I think the very, the very fact that Scripture really tangibly there's evidence that it works um that to me makes me cling to christianity as truth opposed to other religious beliefs mm-hmm. i mean and to be honest with you maya i have an opinion that uh the muslim religion is essentially satan's spin on christianity you know 
if, if some of you guys probably don't even believe in God, or if you don't believe in God, you can't believe in Satan, but I believe that I believe in evil. I believe there, Satan is a real tangible force that is, um, that is in play in this reality. And Satan's favorite thing to do, if you just look throughout history, is to take uh, the precepts of, of Scripture and just mar them, just twist them. So they look similar, but they're twisted in a way they actually destroy the partaker thereof. Um, it's a great question, man. Yeah. I, I mean, to me, I, I wonder, you know, again, in, in, I, I grew up pretty staunch Lutheran uh, in the Midwest, which is fairly common there, but spent a fair bit of time, you know, studying and learning and, and uh, you know, being a, a student of Christianity in that regard, I would say. Um, and I will say that my my perspective shifted a fair bit in going overseas uh, in a number of ways, which I don't want to uh, hijack the entire episode or, or make it about you know my my beliefs. It's, I've heard it's you talk about more them. about you, but yeah. uh, but I, I guess you know the one thing that it makes me think of is that there are are pockets or or parts of the world where um, you know that there's there's just no exposure to Christianity whatsoever, mm-hmm. you know, and and maybe. This individual's life is cut short for whatever reason, whether it's disease or, or just that they live in such a remote part where there's just there is no, no message that they that they ever come across that has anything to do with uh, the word of God. Uh, I'm, I am curious, you know, from a from kind of a thirty thousand foot view, uh, from God's perspective, do you have a, a take on that? Uh, yeah, yes, I do. And uh, Mike, that's dude. Look at. Take a, take the Native American population for example. Um, not you know there are pockets still within the world today, but throughout human history there have been multiple massive populations of human beings that were created in the likeness and image of God um, that never heard of Jesus Christ or, or the God of the Bible. Right. Mm-hmm. So what happens to those people? Right. Like um, I believe Scripture addresses that. And uh, it's recorded uh, in, I want to say, the book of Romans. Paul talks about this specifically. And uh, he talks about how uh, those populations, those people who are never exposed to the gospel of Christ, how the law of God is actually written on the human heart in, in the form of conscience. Um, and that also nature itself is evidence of God, a creator to those people, right? Mm -hmm. So they have the evidence and the conclusions that they should draw from the nature that they are surrounded by. And they also have the law of God written on their heart in the form of conscience. Now, you know, there are many things, you know, we can, we can have different forms of morality and things like this, but that law of God that I'm talking about in the form of conscience is essentially, um, it's essentially do unto others as you would have do unto you, right? Love your neighbor, right? Every human being, I believe, knows that uh, uh, unless they've been corrupted, it's, it's not right to harm another human being. And so I have to imagine, as Paul addressed that in Scripture, I have to imagine that those humans, which are God's children created in the likeness and image of God that never had the opportunity to receive Christ— when they do pass from this world unto their eternal home, 
I, I do have to believe that they will be judged based off of their adherence to the law of God that was written on their heart. Yeah. Now, that's, that's me trying to put logic uh, and, and also bring some, the, the very little bit of scripture that we have that addresses that question and trying to c- come up with a conclusion. Yeah. And that's the best conclusion that I can come up with in my own mind. Sure. Does that make sense, Mike? Yeah, it does. I guess, uh, you know, again, if, and I know it's uh, maybe sacrilege in, in some circles for me to even try to put myself in God's shoes. Uh, but as a parent, uh, you know, I know how I feel about my kids, right? And, to me, that, that's the only relationship that I can even try to parallel to, you know, God and, and the rest of us is, that, yeah. you know, if, if he's our, our heavenly father is that we're his children. And, and again, as a father is that I think of, you know, what, what I would give my kids the autonomy to, to decide on their own and, and, those, and those things that I wouldn't. And there's a pretty stark contrast between how I think I, I would help help my kids navigate their life and what I would let them just, you know, from a free will standpoint, just let them do mm-hmm. and see how it goes mm-hmm. uh, versus what it seems like God does with us mm-hmm. uh, in, in this instance. And so that, that's probably not probably that is the hardest part that I have with um, Christianity and, and just religion as a whole, I would say is, is that is that, you know, there are, are some pretty terrible things that human beings do to each other. Um, and, and I do understand the, uh, the thought process behind Satan and the role that he plays and, and what have you, as it relates to Christianity. I just, to me in thinking of it, uh, like if I have the, uh, benevolent power to do the things that, that God does, there are certain things that I, I just, I don't think I would, I would let happen. You know, if I saw, yeah one of my kids with a two by four with nails sticking out of it, getting ready to smack the shit out of the other one. I'm going to stop that from happening. I'm just not going to let them do it, you know? And so to me, maybe that's an oversimplification. Um, You know, maybe it's, it's all a a test to see who, who passes it. But, you know, to me, even that in, in some ways with, with how far human beings take it uh, against one another, it kind of makes me think of a sick, twisted fucking joke to allow things like that to happen. Um, but it also uh, just makes me question why, you know, which I, I know is common uh, or, or normal or what have you. But uh, so anyway. I mean, well, I, I, I mean, I love these conversations, man. I love being able to talk to somebody that challenges um, res- both. We can respectfully challenge uh, each other's beliefs and the way we understand things. And, you know, it's interesting speaking on that specific kind of hang up. Um, it's interesting that according to this, the account of creation, um, God actually created us as mankind, uh, created us with the ability to not sin, right? In the beginning, we had, as, as human beings, we were created with the ability to not do bad things. We, we could be content with being with God and just pleasing Him and doing good things. I believe God created us for the same reason we own dogs. I think He created us because He wanted a companion. And in the beginning, we had the ability to do that, but we also had the ability to do bad. We just didn't want to do bad because we were content with doing good. And this was one of the biggest transitions that happened with me when I got saved is 
I used to take more pleasure in doing things that I knew were wrong, say pornography, um, uh, say telling little lies, say uh, gossiping. Um, I used to take more pleasure in doing those things than I took pleasure in doing what I knew was good, right? Well, when temptation entered the equation, mankind chose that we made we we deviated from that contentment that he created us for and we chose to um, alter the alter the trajectory of of our species as a creation now the interesting thing is god knew all this was going to happen when he created us mm-hmm. he obviously he's omnipotent right he knew all this was going to happen before he ever created us um but he had a plan for that. He had a plan. He knew we were going to deviate, but he had a plan to reconcile us back to him. And that was Jesus Christ. So I guess, uh, <laughs> respectfully, yeah, man, with the, with the dog reference, because you brought it up. Uh, oh Lord. <laughs> well, so, you know, in, in breeding dogs, raising dogs, training dogs, etc. in that same, same reference, uh, if I have, a six-week-old drivey Malinois puppy, um, and I my expectation of of the pup is companionship, right? But I don't teach him how to be my companion properly. Yeah. That's going to go horribly fucking wrong. Yes, right. Uh, and so, to me, that that's where where I struggle with it is there's such a disparity, person to person, community to community, culture to culture, country to country, what have you, between you know the the lighthouses of 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 christianity in terms of teaching like in some areas it's very strong and very influential yeah. and, and works yeah. very well um in other areas it's woefully absent and it's an absolute fucking nightmare yeah you know so I, i'm not naive to the fact that that is the case uh, and i agree with you that the tenets of of christianity i think for anybody irrespective of whether or not you believe jesus even existed or that he died to save us uh, et cetera, is, is that outside of that, if you follow the, the guidelines of, of Christianity, I think you're, you're probably going to live a pretty good life, a, a good, decent life. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, when you get down to it, like that statement right there, that's, um, that's the bottom line of, of what we need to be hearing as a culture or as a nation right yeah. now. Um, you know, I, I, I share my testimony or try to on every single, uh, show that I get to go on. And I mean, I told you that's what drives me to travel and do these things. And um, ultimately, if you just can't reconcile with with who Christ said he was, uh, that's not a hit on you, man. Like I still, I, I actually believe that the ability to believe in Christ is provided and gifted to you by Christ. Now, now that's a really hard topic so to get better. into, man. Have you, have you seen uh, uh, the Matrix? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like the uh, the Oracle, where you know, yeah, man says, "Watch out for the pot." And then it's like, if I hadn't said anything, would you would you still have broken? Yeah, it? yeah. It's kind of that same thing, but I guess. But ultimately, ultimately, you're right. If you can't reconcile with that, please just understand that um, the foundation of the moral principles of Scripture are good good yeah. things to adhere to in terms of a standard yeah in no, terms I, of a standard yeah and, and i don't disagree with that at all i think uh, you know it all makes makes very good sense and and to your point i think 
there there is a lot of data that uh, not just suggests, but I would say proves that there's a direct correlation between living within those guidelines. And and if you take a look at the um, the relationship between that and what the society is represented as, uh, it, that's not an accident. You know, again, I'm not I'm not lost on that. I just you know back to the dog reference. It's like if I bred a litter of puppies and I've got ten of them and I give two to competent dog trainers two to novice dog trainers, two to two, two teenage dipshits, and then two to two five-year-olds, there's going to be a, a massive disparity on, on the, the environment that I'm putting them, them in, which equates to the end product of, of what those dogs are when they're mature adults. And, and for the dogs, in, in this case, if that's us, how, how do you decide who goes where and who gets that kind of, we'll call it preferential treatment? Because me, me handing two two well-bred puppies that are genetically you know not identical but but mm-hmm. from the same two parents they're genetically very closely related as the rest of them but they go to loving environments where it's super consistent and then i i send two to two crackheads that forget to feed the fucking things you know like how how is that cool on my part to pick and choose you know where where they go and what they're exposed to so um anyway i'll, I'll let you respond and then we can move on no so i, I mean I, you know again you have the the greatest questions man and there are there are people who have literally studied and tried to nail down the answer to that question that you just asked Mm -hmm. they've spent their entire lives trying to nail down and and you could look at that in perspective of um uh, you know you would hear it called predestination how how are you predestined to have the opportunity to be with the good dog trainer, right? Yeah. And, and how is that fair, right? And the ultimate answer is there are so many things about the nature of God, the creator of the universe, and how he operates and how all of this is happening that we can't nail down the exact answer to a question such as that. And I have to accept the fact that I can't give you a clearly defined answer to that. Um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a tough one. And there, there, we, we don't understand how exactly God interacts with us in that way. Who does he provide the ability to believe upon his name to? And how are they selected for that position? If you want to think it's that way, if you want to think it works that way. Um, I'm, so, I'm, I'm, I'm sad that I can't give you an answer, but I'm also very glad that I don't serve a God in which I can understand all aspects of how he interacts with his creation. Because if I did understand every aspect of him and the way he operates and the things he has told to me about himself, if I understood it all, it really wouldn't be a God worth worshiping. And I have to reconcile. I've had to reconcile with that in my own mind. Yeah. You know? Well, what I will say is it's, uh, it's both refreshing and, and I respect the fact that, uh, that you answer it that way. Cause a lot of people don't, you know, they, whether it's smoke and mirrors or, or it's an excuse or, or whatever. And, and to me, like it, it starts with at least being, you know, having the honesty to, to say, fuck, I don't know. You know, uh, now granted you put it way more eloquently than just saying, yeah, I'm oh, not man. sure. But you, you know, the, the beginning at the Bible says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And what that means in layman's terms is the beginning of wisdom. The very beginning of of wisdom is understanding that you don't know anything, that you're insignificant. I I really don't know 
much at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, I don't know when, you, when you really define yeah. that term, yeah. like what do you know? Yeah, no, I agree. Very few things. Yeah. That's the beginning of wisdom, man. No, I, I could not agree more, uh, 100%. This, uh, this unquestionably is, is in the record books for the longest uh, lightning round so far. But uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, so, Mike. No, no, don't be. I mean, to me, that's, that's a good title to hold. Uh, favorite childhood memory? Uh, probably, I'm just going to go off the cuff. When, um, when I wanted a new backpack and my mom forced me to do a six-mile trail run with her, to get oh, the backpack. Really? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Is, uh, is your mom still around? She is. She is, yeah. yeah. Good relationship with her. Amazing right? woman. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, what is your morning routine on, on a normal day, if that exists in your life, uh, when you're at home, not traveling, just a standard standard day? Do you have a, this is what time I get up, and, and let's say the first three, four hours of the day? I wake up at 7 o'clock. I uh, read for about an hour. I PT uh, as soon as I'm done reading. Usually PT till about noon that could be crossfit uh it could be a long run um it could be a swim triathlon whatever i'm very dynamic in that um then i finally eat my first meal and then i go to work and generally work the rest of the day till four or five uh spend time with my wife so i guess we went a little past morning yeah, but that's no, my daily good. routine yeah um as far as the uh that first three or four hours and you didn't mention eating at all in there uh do you eat do you wait to eat till a certain time or, or how does that work? I generally don't eat till uh, 11 o'clock, maybe noon, yeah. right around there. That's I eat two times a day. Yeah. So I eat there at what most people would call lunchtime or dinner. Yeah. You know, old school people call lunchtime dinner, but um, that's when, and then I eat again around six o'clock. So you have dinner and supper, right? Dinner and supper. Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah, that's it. I do it. Uh, do you prescribe to a particular style of eating? Um, as far like if, if you were to put a, a label on it not that you need to but i mean do you do you stay away from certain things or focus on uh, on others or is there a rhyme or reason to what you eat uh i'm not super specific about my diet i do listen to my body um i try to listen to what my body is craving and usually that's a big ribeye steak yeah amen yeah. i'm right there with you uh fruits and vegetables or not not a ton not a ton. Yeah. I'm, I'm a ribeye man. I uh, usually have a little veggies. Uh, yeah. And I do like rice. Yeah. I like rice yeah. too. So. Amen. Uh, workout wise, you, you mentioned PT. Is that uh, is there always running involved? Is there weights? Is it calisthenics? What, is, what does a workout look like? It, it depends on what I'm training for. Uh, if I'm getting tuned up to win a race, then it's going to be heavy, heavy running. Um, I'm in a phase right now where I'm, I'm very well balanced in terms of uh, how I train. Uh, it's probably split half and half between a functional type of weight workout and running, uh, and, and it may do both of those two, you know, both of those in a single day. Um, but when you really get in ultra running, when you really want to get competitive, you've got to cut most of the weight training out, and you have to run. There's no substitute for running, and extra weight, even in the form of muscle, as an ultra runner, is uh, pretty detrimental. Sure. Yeah, that so. makes sense. What's the, is there a, a fighting weight for you that you try to get to or normally get to before races? About 160. 160. About 160. How tall are you? Six foot. Six foot. Yeah. Um, all right. So originally family wise, uh, where are you from and, and what was the dynamic uh, of your family like other than having a, a badass mom from the sounds of it? Yeah, I was from, uh, originally from Northwest Georgia. So I've come full circle. I'm back there now. Uh, I have one little brother who is now my business partner. Um, you know, I grew up in a in a 
fairly, um, you know, middle, lower middle class home. Uh, there was, um, my dad was a hard worker and, uh, my mom was a hard worker too, but, uh, she really, um, forged us through our childhood. My brother and I, she, she actually, uh, had uh, started a daycare where she could spend her time with us every single day, you know, while dad was out working and, uh, we were cared for, we were nurtured, we were fed. And, um, it was a, it was a great, it's a great, North Georgia's a great place to, to grow up. And we were in the woods and having a good time, man. What, uh, what did your dad do? My dad was a police officer for many years. Uh, then he was a land surveyor and, uh, he did that pretty much through our entire childhood. That's an interesting transition. Is there a story behind that? You know, I, I don't, I'm sure there is. Uh, he's, he's never told it to me though. Um, he, him and my grandfather owned a land surveying company together. So I think they just had decided to start that up and yeah. kind of branch out on their own. And, yeah. and, uh, that's really what I always knew him as. That was my first job was, was holding the rod, you know, with the prism <laughs> on it with my dad out, yeah. you know, surveying lots and yeah. neighborhoods. And it's actually really, really rewarding, yeah. fun work. That's cool. Um, Having a, a police officer for a dad, or are, are there any stories that stand out that were super impactful with with him doing that? I know back, you know, when you were a kid, law enforcement was viewed viewed probably differently than it is now, especially in a place like that. But was there, you know, any scary times or any anything's uh, that, that stick out, um, you know, from that time of of being his son in that environment? The biggest memories I have was that you know him and his buddies sitting at the kitchen table cleaning their pistols, man, really? cleaning their guns. That's interesting. And, uh, you know, they would let, they would let us handle the weapons and talk to us about them and, and, uh, make it something, make a weapon, something that we weren't like enticed by. It was just a normal, yeah, it was a tool. Like it was a else. tool. Exactly. And so I still remember those times of him yeah. and his fellow officers sitting around the kitchen table, That's cleaning their guns, man. What was there? um, from a from a criminal activity standpoint, I mean, it sounds like it was kind of a smaller smaller. Oh yeah, yeah, small town. So yeah, not, not a lot of like typical crazy law enforcement stuff happening. I, I assume not at all. I mean, yeah. they fought, they got after it. Yeah. Uh, you know, everybody <laughs> knew everybody. So yeah, yeah, no, yeah. nothing, nothing yeah. crazy, man. Uh, growing up uh, within you know elementary, junior high, high school, were there particular sports that you played more than others or did you play a bunch of them? Did, did you have a, a, a one sport? I, uh, no, I didn't. I wasn't a sports guy. Um, I, yeah, I never was. Uh, I would say if I had to choose one, it would be baseball. Yeah. Yeah. But I've only ever watched one football game in my life. Yeah. That was a few years ago. And yeah. You're not, you're not missing much. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, so in, in high school, what, uh, what kind of student and kid were you were uh was a smaller high school yeah it was a small high school um i i was not the best student i i never it really in, enjoyed school uh it i don't know what it was uh, of course my mom likes to brag on me and say because it, it didn't challenge me um but you know i'm not i'm not some super intelligent yeah. person but um that's what moms are for uh, yeah though, right? i mean uh, you know schools do you, you do have to say public schools teach have to teach to the lowest common denominator yeah. um that's just part of the, the ball game and and uh, i didn't enjoy it and you know the last day of high school i had to go around to my teachers one by one and beg them to change my grades <laughs> in their system so that i could graduate oh, and they awesome. obliged me i think really? because they were ready to get me out of their hair man they were just tired of seeing you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
or not seeing me when yeah. I was supposed to be there. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. All right, I want to talk about a product that is uh, near and dear to my heart. It's Bub's Naturals. Glenn Doherty was uh, one of my closest friends, was tragically killed in Benghazi um, back during that uh, incursion. Uh, two good friends of his, uh, Sean and, and TJ, came together and wanted to design a, a brand around Glenn that both supports the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation, which it does very well, as well as put out a really good product for collagen protein and MCT oil powder. Uh, so they, they came up with Bubs Naturals. It's a brand that I've taken for years. I stand behind a thousand percent, uh, and it's a product that I'm very, very proud and honored to have as a sponsor of this podcast because of where it comes from, who it benefits, and ultimately uh, has the name of, of, you know, one of the best men I've ever had the pleasure of, of knowing and operating with. Um, the college protein, I, I will say, is the best collagen on the planet. It's better than everything else. Uh, it's unflavored. Uh, it's very soluble, and, and it is better than any other product. Uh, per serving, it's 20 grams of protein, seven essential amino acids, and it's one single ingredient, which is collagen. Uh, it is essential for joint health, muscle recovery, gut health, and more. It is 100% NSF, four sport certified. It's Whole30 approved, sustainably sourced. Collagen protein really is the key to performance and keeping your joints healthy. Uh, you can train better, longer, and smarter with it. It is the purest form of collagen. Uh, again, it's sustainably sourced from grass-fed and pasture-raised cows in southern Brazil. It's keto and paleo diet approved, heat tolerant, and you can put it in anything. Uh, the MCT oil powder, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing for coffee creamer. Uh, it's vegan and keto friendly. Uh, it's great for mental focus and energy and just good healthy fat. Uh, and Bubs is the only MCT in the world that is Whole30 approved. If you go to BubsNaturals.com and use the promo code MikeDrop, all one word, all caps, for 20% off, that's 20%. That's one-fifth for you math majors. Again, I, I cannot stress enough um, how honored I am to have Bubs Naturals as a sponsor of the Mike Drop podcast. Uh, Glenn was, was an amazing human being, and the two gentlemen, Sean and TJ, that uh, you know, have, have taken up his um, you know, name in, in honor of, of what he did and brought to this planet uh, in, in bringing that same level of of, uh, you know, just an amazing human being to, to their product is something that, uh, I'll be forever grateful for. So go to uh, bubsnaturals.com, use the promo code mic drop for 20% off. We love ghost bed. They have super comfortable mattresses that last forever and they're made in the USA. Every mattress has a 20 year warranty. Some even have 25 and you can try it out for a hundred and one nights. If you don't like it, you can send it back. No hard feelings. One of our favorite parts about Ghostbed is that each mattress has cooling technology in it, so if you get hot at night like, say, I do here in Texas, these things are a lifesaver. Ghostbed also offers bundles so you can get everything you need. You don't even have to really think about it. Just choose from their four mattresses and then pick your bundle. So whether you just need a mattress and frame or you want it all, like their cooling pillows and sheets, you can get the best bang for your buck. Right now, GhostBed is offering 40% off GhostBed bundles where you get a mattress and adjustable base. Or 30% off everything if you use the code MICDROP at GhostBed.com forward slash MICDROP. You can buy a mattress for like 35 bucks a month. They have zero down, 0% financing plan for up to 60 months. 
go check it out at ghostbed.com forward slash mic drop. Do you have an RV or a camper? You should check out Ghostbed's RV mattress. You can get the all foam or hybrid version, and it's perfectly sized to fit your RV, camper, or trailer. It's way better than what you're sleeping on now with exclusive cooling technology to keep you nice and cool throughout the night. Right now, you can get 30% off the RV mattress by using code MICDROP. Was there a, a light switch moment for you uh, in high school or even before that that, that was the, the defining moment as far as joining the Navy and, and in particular becoming a SEAL? It would have been after high school. Um, so coming up, I never uh, – I had – I don't recall ever even seeing a service member in uniform. Um, so the military was never something that was on my radar or, or even that I thought I was good enough to do. Maybe it was even that. I didn't think that – you know, I was capable to be a part of an organization that was held in that high, high of a regard. Um, but when I graduated high school and I n- knew I wasn't going to go to college, uh, I went into just basically working on a small farm. And I just had the realization one day that if I didn't find something else that was going to take me somewhere else than where I was, then that was kind of going to be my lot in life. And I don't know what clicked. I, I just had that realization. I was just burnt out on, you know, making three or $400 a week and working 70 hours and just being dog tired all the time. And uh, I, back then, the Navy was recruiting very heavily for the SEAL teams. What year did you graduate? That would have been 2006. Okay. Yep. And uh, I'll, I remember looking on a, a laptop computer and seeing an ad banner pop up for uh, – the SEAL teams, you know, the program. And um, at this point, you could you could get a SEAL contract to actually join the Navy yeah. um, without having to go to the fleet first or going to a different A school. And uh, so I, I looked into that, and uh, that's what I – I guess you could say that's what I ended up doing. It took me a long time to get to BUDS. Oh, did it? Yeah. But, uh, how did that go? Um, well, first I had to pass a PST. I, had, I didn't know how to swim. Had never really ran, nothing like that. So I had to pass the PST. It took me about three months to pass it one time. Is that I, before you joined or after? This was before I joined. Okay. Yeah, so just to get the contract, um, yeah. I'd take it every week. Finally passed it, got the contract, went to boot camp, and on the last day of boot camp, uh, my RDCs pulled me out of formation, told me I had to go to medical. So I marched over to <clears throat> medical, and the dive medical officer there proceeded to tell me that I had a seven centimeter pericardial cyst on my heart. Oh, wow. And um, it was an asymptomatic condition, so it would never bother me my entire life. But they were worried that if I did make it through buds, when I dove, um, that the pressure change would burst the cyst. So they kicked me out of the Navy. They basically just said, you know, you, you, you don't have the option of becoming a SEAL. Um, and I could have went to the fleet. Um, but breach of contract, I decided to get out. And uh, after a, a hard time, I finally found a surgeon that would perform this elective surgery. And uh, they opened my chest up and took this pericardial cyst off my heart. And I went back into the Navy less than a year after that oh, heart shit. surgery. Was the, was the surgery, I mean, it sounds invasive, but was it in terms of recovery? Like, was it a, a tough surgery and tough recovery? Yeah, it, it was a... It was a pretty tough surgery it was invasive um and uh it the pericardial cyst is a pretty rare condition so it was interesting the surgeon that did perform the surgery he had never 
removed one of these things before. He was just <laughs> studying other cases, you know, the few cases yeah. that there were out there of this condition. And um, when I came out of it, I think the, the biggest thing I had going for me is, you know, I was 18, 19 years old, and I recovered fast. The, the hardest, the biggest, I guess, longest thing that took was to swim because when I would stretch out in the water and try to get long in the water, it would pull on those muscles in my chest and cause a significant amount of pain. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it, it, uh, after a few months, I was, I was about good to go. Yeah. Was there any... I mean, I know you said it was asymptomatic, but was there any difference performance-wise before having it and then after not? Did it make not any, any difference? I never would have known I had it if I wouldn't yeah. have went through a dive physical. Yeah, wow. Uh, so when you went back in, how, did you get to skip boot camp and go straight to buds at that point? Or <laughs> Thank how? God, yeah. yeah. Because I made it to the last day of boot camp, we were literally going to to the thing where you exchange your hat that says recruit for yeah. your hat that says Navy. Yeah. Um, because I made it that far – when I did come back in, they let me skip boot camp. Now, I still had to sit on hold for uh, a couple of months oh, wow. while they reviewed this case. Because when I showed back up in the Navy, it was the, the same dive medical officer that had disqualified me was still in that position. So when I walked back into his office, obviously, he was like, what are you doing back here, man? And yeah. so once I gave them the paperwork from the civilian surgeon, they pushed it all the way up and finally approved it. Yeah. So a couple of months on hold, and then did you did you go through A school or you went straight to Buds? Yeah, because, I went straight to Buds. Yeah. Buds class two seven eight. Um, I went straight through with two seven eight. Never no no rolls, injuries, yeah. nothing. Was there any any uh, aspect of SEAL training that stuck out for you as being easier than you thought it would be, or more difficult than you thought it would be? Um. No, I, I, the best way to answer that question for me personally, Mike, is BUDS was one of the, if not the only thing in my life personally that lived up to my expectations yeah. for what I expected it to be, right? It was just, it was, it was actually probably harder as a whole yeah. than, than what I thought it would, would be. Um, was there a hardest part? for you the hardest part for me was probably the cold water man yeah this surf, surf torture i mean i you see how skinny i am i've always been a skinny dude that grew up in in the heat in north georgia and the humidity and yeah and uh boy that cold water <laughs> <laughs> i did not yeah. like it no, one go, bit yeah. man but i had so much invested yeah. just to get on the start line to uh to have a shot at this i mean i i can truly say I would I would have died before. Yeah, you know I don't doubt that. I mean, a lot of people say that. Uh, I, I believe you more than probably anybody. I just had too much <laughs> invested, man. It was yeah. a blessing to to go into that with that much invested. You yeah. know, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I don't think I would have made it if I would have went in the first time. Really, I don't think I would have. So the the surgery added a a level of currency, dedication wise, huh? You, you never you never realize how hungry you are for something until it's taken from you. Yeah, no, I I understand. Absolutely. Um, all right. So you, you graduate uh, through buds for, for me, not that you asked, but the island, San Clemente Island was the worst part for me because uh, it was. You are not lying, man. Yeah, because we went through in February. It was El Nino. So the water was like 58 degrees. The surf was like 12 feet. And we had a big class and they fucking hated us. I know everybody says that the instructors <laughs> hate you, but like they wanted to try to get rid of as many uh, guys as possible. And so, yeah, it was it was miserable. But. Um, it was worse than hell week. Absolutely. But, 
That's all right, a so, hard place, dude. Yeah. No, it is. Um, all right. So, where, where, uh, which SEAL team did you did you go to uh, after after you graduated? So we so we went from Buds to SQT, which is the the newer pipeline. I guess yeah. they're still doing that. And then after SQT, I went to SEAL Team Eight, and uh, that's where I spent my entire career. Uh, other than the very end, I was at Tradeet for a little yeah. while doing training, taught MARops, land warfare. Um, had a lot of fun there. But yeah, Team Eight was where I was at yeah. my whole career. How many uh, platoons deployments did you do there? I uh, had two platoons, and then we had some kind of smaller, smaller deployment type yeah. trips, yeah. you know, in between those. So, yeah. um, on your first deployment, uh, where did you guys go on uh, on that one? The first deployment was just a UCOM deployment. Yeah, yeah. we were we were all over um, all over Europe, and yeah. mostly just FID stuff. Yeah. Um, was uh was there any any part of that that um that correlated to some of the, the Middle East stuff or, or was it segregated that way? Yeah, it, yeah, it was, it was segregated. I mean, the interesting thing, the interesting thing about, I guess my career, uh, in the teams, um, I'm still, I'm still processing a lot of it, man. I've only been out for, for about two years and, and you know, when I showed up to teammate, teammate had just got allocated to the continent of Africa, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were when when you when you go through the training pipeline and the whole time you're being told, you know, you're going, go, you're going, dance. you're going, man, you're yeah. going, and then you show up to teammate. And, uh, and you're like, well, this team is actually allocated to a, a different region. Um, it was, uh, there were, a, there were a lot of bad attitudes, man. <laughs> yeah, I can see, I mean, there were I can a see lo- being salty about that. I mean, there were a lot of bad attitudes, man. And, and, you know, my, my entire career was, um, it was, it was wrought with, M- mistakes and, and 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 bad and and bad attitudes and and yeah. uh how, how was your attitude towards that did you did you fall in, in that same mentality yeah yeah you yeah. you get you, you definitely you you can't you can't help it man i mean you you get sucked into it and you know it's always hard for me too to to determine how much how much do we do we really say about this stuff, you know, because I feel like the SEAL teams have been painted, a picture of the SEAL teams have been painted. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's very few people who actually talk about what... Some of the other shit that goes on. Talk about what it's really like, man. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard to... It's it's I I haven't got I haven't processed it enough yet to really know what to do uh, uh, and, and just you know I had during that first deployment I had my sea daddy uh, Jake Hubman he was my mentor um, you know I, I lost him after that first, he killed himself after that first deployment and and uh, just seeing the way that he was treated and and. It's hard for me to reconcile with this stuff, man. Yeah. 
um, I, I don't know. You, you almost have a in a in a way. There's a part of me that has a bone to pick. Sure. Um, I don't know, but yeah. No, I, I mean, I certainly understand where you're coming from. I mean, uh, you know, there are different periods in my career that that were fortuitous as far as deployment schedules, and there were some that that were not so much. You know, and and it didn't have anything to do with our uh, skill level as a platoon or, yeah. or whether or not we were liked or not, or, or how well we worked together or, or any of that. It was really just dumb luck, you know? Um, yeah. We, you know, my second platoon, we were slated to, to be a South, like we were supposed to go to, to the middle East. And then at the last minute they yanked the rug out and we were going to go to Southeast Asia and spend, you know, we were going to deploy to Guam and do some exercises in the Philippines and, and go to Thailand and, you know, the, the standard kind of lot that way. And then halfway through that, Iraq kicked off. And so we ended up going and doing that. And, and so a, as kind of a classic example is that it was supposed to be one thing and then it turned into another and then it, you know, turned into something else entirely. And, and yeah. none of that had anything to do with us. Yeah. I mean, nothing, you know, yeah. like we could have been the best platoon at, at team three. We could have been the worst. It wouldn't have mattered. Like that, that's just where, where, where we were at and, and kind of where we were destined to be, I guess. But yeah, totally, um, man. <clears throat> totally. Yeah, and I, I've had to I, – I think, too, for me, a, a big part of – I've only been out of the Navy for, like, two years, and, like, a big part of this transition has been me coming to the understanding that um, I was a part of that organization, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, who am I now because I'm no longer a part of that organization, like – yeah, I earned. I did everything they asked me to do. I earned the right to, to have my trident. Um, but now, who who am I now? Because I'm no longer part of that organization anymore. And yeah. and how do you how do you interact with with your with that past? Mm-hmm. Like it's tough. How do you interact with that? You know what I mean. In in terms of in terms of what do you what do you sh- what do you share about it? Like. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? I, I do. I mean, it's, you know, I've been out for a while, uh, you know, just over a decade now. And, and uh, it is tricky. You know, there's there's a lot of dynamics that um, that play a role in, in those decisions. And there's also, I think, the internal element that whatever it was that attracted you to that line of work in the first place and whatever you possess within yourself to be able to succeed and thrive in that line of work um, you know, means that you are wired different than most people. Mm -hmm. And when you go from that environment where that is truly your identity, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not a job that that is who you are, like Mm -hmm. to your core, that's, you know, what everybody thinks of you. Like you're not Chad, Wright. You're a Navy seal. And then you're Chad, Wright. You know? And and, yeah, exactly, man. Yeah. And, and so I see it a lot and I, I will say, um, you know, I feel very fortunate in that I, I didn't really, struggle with that or, or run into that uh, when I got out for a number of reasons, which I'll share in a minute. But I, I see a lot of guys that they get out and, and their entire identity is attached to what they used to do. And now that's yanked out from under them and they're lost. Yeah. You yeah. Know, and, and especially when they go from that to something very benign career wise, like finance or insurance or fucking whatever, you know, they, they yeah. work in an office and they're, you know, they're dressed in a suit and, you can encapsulate their entire career, no matter how illustrious it was in, in one bullet point is, Oh yeah, that dude used to be a seal. 
Yeah, man. that's the extent of it, you know. And, and you could have spent 15 years getting your hands dirty for Uncle Sam doing some amazing shit, but now you're just some other dickweed in a tie that used to be a seal, and, and that's that's the most that anybody's going to squeeze mm-hmm. out of that period of your life, and that is really difficult for most guys to deal with if they're not doing something like running until your legs fall off or letting dogs bite you in the nuts or, or whatever, you know, so. It's been essential to find an, a, a, a new mission, 100%. Yeah, it, it's crucial. If you, and, and that's, you know, that was going to be my point is that, you know, for me, I, I didn't struggle because I, it was a springboard out of the military right into setting up my own business and, mm-hmm. and doing what I was passionate about. And, and uh, to me, that's ultimately the key is that, you know, you, you hear the, the question, you know, what's the meaning of life? And, and to me, it just boils down to one single word, which is purpose whatever that is for each person, you know, is that if they, if, if when they wake up, they're excited about what their, their day is going to bring them, they're going to be happy and they're going to feel fulfilled and, mm-hmm. and they're going to feel like their life has meaning on the transverse. If those things are absent, you're going to be a miserable fucking wretch. Uh, and that's where people, you know, turn to, to pain pills and booze and, yeah. and yeah. suck start a pistol because they're, they're fucking miserable, you know, and, and it's sad, but, uh, you know, I, I, anyway, um, yeah, and I think all that being said, I think it's it's worth to take a, a minute to uh, recognize even amongst this conversation that can really only be had between two team guys because we're yeah. kind of the only type of people that could understand it. I think it's worth taking a moment to say that in spite of all the the flaws and the, the, the difficult transitions and, and the struggles that all of us have, that I still truly believe that some of the best men on earth pass through the doors of Naval Special Warfare. Yeah, I, I could not. I, I mean, with, without a doubt. And, yeah. and I think that's one of the things that that I struggle with so much is, is to how to interact with that, that part of my past because I have such a respect for that community because of the men who did make it what it stands for. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Man, that's a that's a deep, deep level of respect, man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, feel very fortunate, and it sounds like age-wise you were in a, in a pretty similar boat. I mean, from 18 to 30, I was surrounded by what it sounds like you would argue the same thing were, were some of the greatest men on the face of the earth, you know, that, yeah. that were 10, 15, 20 years older than us that had been there, done that, that collectively took – all of us under their wings and, and turned us into, into men, frankly, you know, I mean, I, I we grew up in the SEAL teams, you know, yep. I mean, you're not, you're not a fucking man at 18, uh, you know, Definitely just, just not, because, brother. just because the, the law says technically, you know, you're an adult, you're, you're not, you know, and, uh, and that path, I think about, you know, how, how wildly different my life would be if I had done anything else, um, you know, and, and it would it would be vastly different. I, I can rest assure you that you and I wouldn't be sitting here talking. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, there's, exactly there's right. no way. But uh, that's uh, that's that's interesting. I'm sorry to hear about your your mentor uh, taking his own life. I know that 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 has plagued our community uh, more than I think a lot of people would uh, would assume or expect um, or even believe. But mm-hmm. um, so your your first platoon was. Uh, it was a Europe uh, kind of training training mission for an internal defense type type of uh, environment. You get back. Um, what was the the transition into the second platoon, and then ultimately where you went for that one? Yeah, the um, I got back home, and uh, I guess the the big thing that that kind of um, 
you know, you just, you just, you just jump right back into the, the training cycle and you were going again, you know, another ULT and, uh, the next big rotation, we knew we were going to Africa. We didn't know where, um, and finally ended up going to Northern Africa when the Arab spring was, was getting crazy and the embassy in Benghazi was attacked. And, uh, that was, that was, not just isolated to that single area like most people think because that's what the news focused on. Um, so uh, at the last minute, uh, we we shifted locations and we went to North Africa, Tunisia, and um, that embassy had gotten hammered, dude. And uh, we spent a couple of months there uh, doing good work. And uh, that was uh, – that was – one of the highlights of that deployment um from from you know growing up as a kid in in small town georgia to all the the trials and tribulations that took place of of the challenges and, and obstacles you had to overcome just to become a seal knowing what that job is being driven to want to serve in that capacity being what sounds like maybe a little salty and let down about the first deployment mm -hmm. Now you find yourself with all of that having transpired, and now here here you are, varsity team, fucking Super Bowl, whatever. I know you're not a football guy. Yeah. Uh, say baseball, it's the World Series, and and you're up at up at bat, and now you're finally boots on the ground in an area where shit's going down. What is going through your mind? I, I loved it, man. I mean, that was that was a uh, that was probably one of the coolest, you know, real missions that we got to be a part of. Um, and uh, what was going through my mind, um, it, it, it teaches you how to really lean on your teammates on, in, in a deeper way, right? Mm -hmm. And, and it, it teaches you how to trust your teammates in, in a whole new way. Yeah. And um, because you, you know, especially in a place where like we, we were, we weren't on some big, you know, installation or, or some big established base. Uh, and... Um, it was uh, it was a lot of growing. Uh, it was a lot of growing in terms of taking the job seriously, um, and uh, it, it was it was interesting. Yeah. So, is there um, a couple of of incursions or instances, whether you want to call them missions? I mean, it sounds like it was all kind of one long one in, in that regard. But I, we'll say operations individually or specifically that stand out that you can share and kind of walk us through that um, that you guys went through that uh, that were of note yeah I mean probably I, I guess the the main the main challenge that we faced within the uh, the scope of that specific mission if you want to call it that was um, dealing with the incompetency of the State Department mm -hmm. um, and trying to get all of their people uh, essentially herded into a safe location. Um, and, and while we were there, these, uh, if you want to say riots or attacks, they would, they would pop up fairly, frequency, or fa fairly frequently. And um, w it was like herding cats, man, trying to get these people into a safe location uh, while these – pop-up things were happening and um and, and another cool part of that mission too was working with uh 
our Green Beret Special Forces unit called a SIF team. Yeah. Uh, those guys were there, and it was our fir- It was my first time actually getting to integrate with another unit uh, and work side by side and share tactics and uh, and come up with a plan. Yeah. You know, for for what we were doing. Um, uh, the other stuff that that was going on, kind of in the background. I, I don't know that um, it'd be proper to talk about it. Sure, I would. Um, on, on <laughs> but, of course it would. Yeah. On uh, mic drop, it's always proper to talk well, about like, it. Like I say, man, it's you won't always get in trouble if you talk it's about always it. like, you know, how how much how much do you yeah. how much do you go into sure. specific detail about um, the different all the different components of what's happening in an area like that yeah. that involve other three letter agencies and and, and other um, yeah. Than, than just us. Sure. You know what I mean? There's a lot going on there. Yeah, you're not the only only show in town. No, it was a complex uh, environment for sure. Yeah. Uh, could you speak to uh, any hairy situations, not not disclosing who was there or what the goal was or anything like that, but just like, you know, ground level, almost first person, uh, you know, orientation of, of kind of, you know, something where, where maybe you were, um, in, in a mentality or a mindset of, I don't know if this is going to, going to pan out well for us or, you know, were, were there situations that, that happened like it, that? It, 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 we, we, no, we really never got in a situation there where we felt like we were about to lose control. Yeah. I, I felt like, um, once we arrived there, uh, we, we established a good foothold and yeah. came up with a defensive strategy, um, quickly enough that, it was never, there was never a moment where it was like, holy crap, you know, we're, yeah. we're about to lose this, this structure. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the, the weirdest moments, I guess for me there is, is kind of after, uh, we had been there for a little while and, and our presence was known and everything had kind of calmed down a little bit. I guess the weirdest feelings I remember having or the most eerie feelings would be just walking from, uh, that compound to actually where the safe house where we were staying in and um with you know an mp5 in your backpack and a concealed carry weapon and it's you know the sun's going down and the call for prayer starts going off and you know the same people who were gathered in the streets you know two or three days before they're they're watching you yeah they're patterning you they know where you're at and and there are many a times i I walked back and forth uh that um and I, I I felt the hair on my back, the yeah. back of my neck stand up, man. Yeah. Which for you is quite a bit, right? Not back then. <laughs> Not back then. Yeah. No, uh-huh. we actually did get to grow our beards out yeah. out there, so yeah. that was pretty sweet. How uh, how how close was yours then to what it is now? Oh, nowhere near. Nowhere, nowhere near. Nowhere near. I mean, how, how many months or years of growth do you have there? Oh, I haven't shaved since I got out. Oh no, shit! It's a couple yeah. couple of years worth. Yeah, that, uh, that's that's badass. Um, were, were there times where you guys were getting fired upon and or attacked, like actually attacked, or was it pretty uh, uh, kind of in the shadows uh, type type moving around? Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it was. In, it was more in the shadows. Yeah, essentially the, the initial wave. We were QRF, right? So the initial wave, they come in and they had hit that place. They had burned like four hundred vehicles and you know smashed the windows out and all that. And so by by time. We as the QRF kind of got in the area that had kind of yeah. that had kind of melted away. Yeah. yeah. Um, in, in thinking through what took place on your first deployment in Europe with your uh, being reborn, if you will, um, 
did that change your mentality, mindset, attitude, or, or how you conducted yourself um, differently in the in the second deployment versus the first? Well, this actually this actually happened. I actually um, got saved during that second deployment. Oh, okay. So once we once we were done in that right there in North Africa, we actually went back to rejock um, before we went out to the next location. And uh, that's actually when that happened. Oh, okay. So it was on, on that, on that deployment. That was, I don't know, that deployment was probably five or six months long. Yeah. And um, yes, it did change. It changed me tremendously. Can you share where you went after, after the rejock in Europe? Yeah. So after we finished there, we went out to Nigeria and we were working with uh, Nigerian special forces. They were fighting against a really nasty group called Boko Haram. Yeah. And um, we worked with those guys for a couple of months. Was that mostly FID type stuff or? Yeah. Yeah. That was mostly training them, equipping them, uh, advising them. Yeah. Um, and uh, great group of dudes. I had a blast out there doing yeah. that job, man. Any close calls when working with them, or was it pretty? <laughs> I don't know about close calls, man. I do remember. I'll never forget. We were uh, we were out on the range training them one day, and we had supplied them all with Sig P two two sixes, same you know pistols that we used. And I'll never forget one of those dudes uh, punching out to take his first shot in double action, and. I assume his finger was not strong enough to pull the trigger. <laughs> so I'm watching him and he's pulling the hammers coming back, but he just can't get that first shot off. And he looks around and he tries to uh, make sure that nobody's looking and he cocks the hammer back to the first action <laughs> and it takes his first shot. Good old long, uh, long draw, the double action. Yeah, shot. man. Yeah, yeah. Those, those guys were, uh, they were something else, yeah. dude. That's a gonna... weird, that's a weird country, man, because it's, uh, you know, Nigeria split the northern half is Muslim and the southern half is predominantly Christian. Yeah. And uh, it was really cool to see that special operations unit, essentially their equivalent of SEALs. It was a mixture of Christian and Muslim guys. Oh, wow. Um, because they were coming from all over the country to be part of this special forces unit. And it was really cool to see how well they interacted together yeah. in spite of their, in spite of, the religion, the religious differences that was essentially tearing their country in half. Yeah. Well, yeah. So interestingly, I mean, so you, you had just come from a pretty, uh, you know, religious experience yourself, if you want to call it that, yeah. an awakening of, of sorts. So what, uh, how did that change who you were as, as a man, as a seal, as an operator, uh, after that? Yeah. I mean, it it's, it changed everything about me as a as a man for sure. I, I think the the biggest the, the way to sum it up is I could I I was in a place where like we talked about earlier I found more pleasure in I found more fulfillment in doing what I knew was right than uh than than what I knew I had been doing that was wrong, and that's in terms of how I interacted with people, um, how I viewed people. Uh, not just my teammates, but anybody who I was around. Um, it, it changed the way I talked. Um, it changed the way I, I, I viewed the world. Uh, and all that kind of happened nearly overnight. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was noticeable, you know, by the guys that I was there with, that I was working with. Yeah. Did they uh, ask you about it? 
Yeah, 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 they totally asked me about it, man. And, you know, that's, I think that's one really, that's one really cool thing about at least that specific platoon is uh, nobody, nobody judged. I, I saw very few instances in the teams where anybody judged anybody based off of how they wanted to believe. Yeah. You I would mean, think it would be different. Yeah, like, well, I, I mean, to me, one of the, one of the interesting and, and I think refreshing simplicities of, of the military in general, uh, or at least when I was in, when we were in, it sounds like it's maybe less that way now, social experiment-wise, but is that you, you really can kind of reduce most decisions and perspectives down to one, one question, which is, does this make us a better warfighting force? Yes, do it. No, yeah. don't do it. But I think, you know, that's on the macro, the entire military or Department of Defense. But you can go all the way down to the micro is that my my opinion of you is going to be based really on one fucking thing. Can you do your job and do I trust to, to go to war with you? Yes, then then I, I love who you are, right? If the answer is no, I, ca- I don't want to fucking work with you. And I, and I don't care what, what other exterior things exist. You know, skin color means nothing. Hair color means nothing. Religion means nothing. None of those personality traits uh, or or, um, aesthetic traits mean anything. You know, the only thing that matters is, do I trust you to to squeeze my shoulder going going into a room? Yep. You know, and and so to me, there's a a simplistic beauty in that, in that um, it it gives you an ability to, to live that way. You know, and I think that's one thing that, Unfortunately, most people never have the pleasure of experiencing being able to, to be in an environment like that where you truly can be singularly focused on one thing and there's really nothing that divides you, you know, other than job competency. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one thing that the, that the platoons do yeah, very a well. really good yeah. job at, man. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the higher up you go, the less it's that way, I think, uh, military-wide. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so you get back from that deployment. What uh, Did you go to trade at right after that, or did you do other other stuff? For yeah, you? we did. Uh, I did some augments with the Secret Service counter-assault team. Um, How was that? That was with Mr. Obama, so we did, we did some... I know, I know you should call him Mr. and not President. <laughs> no, I'm just busting your chat. My chat. bad. President, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we uh, we did some work with them over in Africa in a couple of different locations. Can, um, can you share the nature of what you were doing, or is that? Uh, yeah, again, I don't I don't know yeah. how much um, whatever you're comfortable needs with. to be put out, but essentially it was um, we were the we were the kind of heavy hitters. Oh, okay. um, if something if something yeah you know went down and uh, we had a plan. Um, to like, get it to, to extract him out of the situation. Uh, and we were there, ready, prepared to yeah. execute that plan. I gotcha. In the event. Um, it, was a, it was a really difficult mission because as a SEAL, you're trained to be so offensive. Um, I mean, we're, we're always going to try to ambush or we're always going to try to stack everything in our favor you know in any scenario yeah but in with that job you're running purely defensive mm-hmm. and uh that's an uncomfortable place to be man it is i mean reactionary is uh is tr- is tricky and uncomfortable that yeah. way you know uh, but it sounds like i mean you guys were were the the secret services sledgehammer or 
or catch dog in uh, in hunting dog terms, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And yeah. you know, uh, also the spotlight is so on everything that's happening yeah. in that environment, um, and so you know there there are things that happen where you want to hesitate because you there's so much that rides on a decision that you make i mean i remember being out uh president obama was in a a meeting and we were basically the the inner security uh for that building he was in and the local guys had kind of the outer ring of security and you know we were told if anything breaks through that outer ring you 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 eliminate that threat, right? Yeah. Because we were real close. And so dude, local dude breaks through the, that outer perimeter. The local dudes are yelling at him, trying to stop him. He's on a little moped, got a big jacket on, you know, and it's he's 90 degrees and he's got a jacket. He's got a big jacket on. <laughs> yeah, it's hot outside. And, yeah. and he's just, um, he's rolling straight towards us, man. And, you know, you draw down on this dude with your rifle and, the whole time you're thinking, if I if I pull the trigger on this dude, uh, and and he he's not he doesn't he's not really a threat. There's going to be some severe repercussions. Yeah. And um, and so luckily in that scenario, the guy sees a bunch of dudes coming out, drawing drawing down on him with rifles, a bunch of white dudes, and uh, he stops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he ended up ended up just being an an idiot yeah you know what i mean but i mean it's like you got your hands tied yeah it felt like you had your hands tied sure you know especially coming from the environment you were just in i imagine you're even more uh not trigger happy but you know on edge more than than uh you would be maybe if you went straight over there or that was like your main gig yeah yeah totally Yeah. Yeah. yeah Uh, so did you do one one augment with them there? Or did we did. You, I did two augments two with augments. them. Yeah, and sim, yeah. similar missions. Three different there. locations. Yeah, two two augments. Yeah, yeah. similar missions. Yeah. Um, I got the utmost respect for those guys, man. Yeah. They do a hard freaking job. Yeah, I mean the amount of the amount of stress and travel yeah. and moving pieces to the job they do, yeah, getting the, getting the, some insight into it, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah the, the planning that goes into that. That if they've done their job right, that nobody even realizes exists you know or that they were there is uh is mind-bending yeah yeah um so you come back from that and then, and then you went to trade out after that is that so i come back from that yeah and i actually um was you know thinking that we were just going to roll into another ult mm-hmm. uh and when i got back from that i realized for the first time that my wife was uh dying from addiction Oh, wow. Um, so were you married uh, this whole time? Yeah, I've been married the whole time. Okay. When, yeah. when did you get married? At what point? I got married uh, just shortly after uh, shortly after I arrived at Teammate. Oh, okay. So, yeah, just kind of right after SQT. The hometown sweetheart kind of thing? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We knew each other yeah. since we were 16 years yeah. old. Um, so you're over there and you realize she's dying of addiction. Can I ask what uh, what kind? Uh, pills. Pills. Yeah, yeah, opiates and okay. benzos and everything huh? all that stuff yeah. yeah what uh what made you realize that well when i got back from from that second deployment um it had 
the the addiction had progressed to a place where essentially it was multiple back to back overdoses, you know, and she, she would spend days in the bed, you know, just kind of in a coma essentially. So it, it had progressed to the point where it was like, wow. Prior to that, I had traveled so much in training and, and deploying or whatever. I've been gone so much. You know, it, it hadn't progressed to a point that it was noticeable for somebody like me that was gone all the time. Yeah. You know, I'd come home and spend a couple, two or three days with her, and then I'd be gone again. But this time, it progressed so far that you couldn't you couldn't hide it. Yeah. And, uh, and she was – it's amazing that she didn't pass away. Yeah. Uh, but she, I think, came to the conclusion in her own mind that I've either got to – okay, I'm at the point now that I'm going to have to get clean or it's going to be over. Yeah. Did you give so that her kind that? kind of rail, railroaded me, man. Did you give her that talk? No, I, I, I didn't. Um, I was angry. Yeah, I was angry because this this scenario really sidetracked me in career-wise. You know what I mean? I had to make a decision very quickly. Am I going to be here and serve my wife, or am I going to give myself to the Navy? Like, Am I going to give myself to my wife or give myself to the Navy? Um, it's a tough, tough choice. Yeah, that's it's really tough, man. And you know, when you go, when you go to your leadership, at least the leadership, at least the people that that I was with then, and you tell them that you don't get embraced. I mean, you feel you feel a little. You almost get ostracized really you, you know what i mean um but that's the decision that i made was like i had to go to i had to go to the people that needed to know yeah. and tell them that uh hey man i gotta take a knee here like where can where can i go so that i can be around enough to at least ensure that my wife makes it through this process. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so that ended up being trade it. Yeah. Um, what was that path like? I mean, I, I feel like we've had enough people on. I don't need to get too, too heavy into trade. That is essentially training platoons to at, at certain uh, skill sets to, to deploy. I'd love to focus on uh, the at home component of that, of, of what that was like for you. If you could sum, if you can sum it up, I guess in one sentence, it would be learning to die to yourself. Um, and and I think the the biggest key for me was was really reconciling with the fact that this thing had progressed into a, a disease. It was something that she had no control over. Um. And so that's re- that was really key for me to understand that because prior to coming to that conclusion, you're just angry at the person. You know, you're like, 
what the crap, man? Yeah. Why don't you just stop doing stop it. doing this? So you, I had to come to the realization that she can't stop. Like this is going to take treatment. And uh, and then it's it's a matter of sacrificing everything that you wanted to do, everything that you thought you were going to do in order to serve the person that you love and to honor the covenant that you have with that person. That's freaking hard, man. That's, <laughs> a, that's I, I can't think of a more selfless act. You know, I mean, I, I don't know what that would be. Well, when you, you know, if you were, if you were to ask me what is the number one attribute that I would look for in a teammate, it would be selflessness first. Mm-hmm. Uh, if every if every dude in a SEAL platoon is more fo- is focused more on their teammate and serving their teammate than they are focused on their own personal needs and desires, it would be an unstoppable force. And there have been platoons that o- operated like that, and yeah. they were unstoppable. Yeah. Um, but that applies in in marriage too. The only difference is. Uh, in marriage, you can just quit. Mm-hmm. There's that. There's that option that's lingering, and available, and accepted widely by our culture. And there was a very distinct moment that I wanted to quit. You know, I had I had worked hard to finally be in the position that I was in, and you know, my desire was to keep going, uh, and I wanted to say heck with this man like why why am i sacrificing everything for this and i call my little brother again and um he just he simply said to me i told him i said i i can't do this any longer like this is crazy and he just said to me chad you don't have a choice like he reminded me of that covenant that i had made and that that actually means something and um, once I made that decision to take quitting off the table, it, then it was a process of learning to die to myself, which, by the way, I'm still in the process of learning to die to myself. Yeah. Can you uh, expound on that? Yeah, it's, um, you know, addiction is something that stays with the person their entire life, uh, and 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 addicts' life. And by the way, I'm speaking from my perspective. Uh, I'm not an addict myself, just maybe from what to, I've maybe seen. Maybe to running, you could <laughs> yeah, argue maybe to running, punishing yourself. But you know, so we we recently had another bout with um, with active addiction, and you know, I realized really quickly that I had not completely died to myself, and I was not completely invested in. Um, serving my wife because the first thing that I thought was how many more times are you going to drag me through the mud? This was how recent? It was very recent. Yeah. And and so that was a red flag to me. And I thought, no, man, I have to change that from how many more times are you going to drag me through the mud to let's go through the mud together. 
You know what I mean? I do. And <laughs> I, 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 I am curious, uh, just in, in my own, because I, I, I've never met your wife. Um, and for that matter, you know, it's the first time I've met you. I have a ton of respect for you. But in the, in the playing uh, devil's advocate, is that sacrilege to, to call it that? No, you're good, Mike. Um, is there a red line for you? Is, is there a point where you'd say, you know what, that's it? Or is it you'll, you'll go down on the ship with her? Yeah, I, I would. There, there wouldn't. There, there, there I, is. I, I, can't, I can't see. I, I, I mean, I think biblically, um, biblically there, there are some, some lines that, that and, and I, I would probably adhere to those biblical lines. And, and you know, uh, biblically, um, Christ in, in the New Testament he, he there are lines in terms of adultery in cases of adultery or in cases of abuse um things like that but uh but with the the struggle that we face as a couple and that struggle is recovery mm-hmm. there is no line yeah. it, it would no that, you know i mean to, to me there's i think the distinction then for alleviating a uh a term, the the term of abuse would be in that it's a disease and not a choice, right? Is that yeah, yeah? Is and, that and make that distinction. And, and by abuse, I mean like physical abuse, like you know. Well, uh, yeah, but I, I mean to me, mental abuse is no is no better. That's a good point. That's you know? a good point. And and to me, there there is an element of well, let, let me take one step back. Is that I, I I'm not pretending to be in your shoes. I, I have a, a a truckload of respect for your dedication to your wife and, and to everything in your life. It's, it's inspiring and and noteworthy, no two ways about it. For me, it's difficult to, to look at something purely as a disease and, and not Mm -hmm. at least somewhat of a choice when you can compare, say a five-year-old with leukemia, right? Like to me, that's very clear cut. That's a fucking disease that they had no, no part in. Again, and this is not me saying that addiction isn't a disease. I, I, I do get it. You know, I, I've seen, I've known plenty of people and, and agreed, like, while, while myself, I am not an addict. I've seen people that I, tr- I trusted and respected the hell out of that struggled enough with it for me to say, yeah, there's something more there than just they're choosing to be an asshole. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's not the case. But I do think that there, there is at least an element of choice uh, to it. I mean, there, there's some element. And so my, my take again, and, and just, uh, again, I guess from a devil's advocate standpoint is that the amount of mud that you're being drugged through, could one not argue that, that that is in essence sort of abuse or, or it could be taken that way, mental abuse that way. You know, that's the interesting, that's the interesting dynamic when, in terms of addiction and seeing it as a disease is because if you, if I look at it from a purely logical standpoint without without being in the mind of an addict you have to draw the conclusions that the first step um is a choice but what are the what are the what are the components of that person uh or the flaw the the flaws in the wiring if if you want to call it flaws we're all flawed but what what is it in their wiring that leads them to that choice sure so you know even even that initial choice to start using that drug how are they influenced to make that choice yeah um 
You know, in a lot of cases, they're influenced by a, a medical professional and they're simply following instructions yeah, yeah. that they think are going to make them better. Yeah. But it becomes very quickly something that is all consuming. Yeah. Uh, addiction is, I have seen it. It is more powerful than a mother's love. It's more powerful than sex. It's more powerful than money. It is what I believe to be the most powerful influential force on earth i don't disagree with that and, and i think you bring up a good point uh one that that admittedly you know that i i've thought of it from that perspective i won't say that i never thought of it from that perspective um but i i like the way that you put it and i do think you know ultimately the choices that you make you know there's been enough studies on you know the role the amygdala amygdala plays and whether or not you really are in in a conscious control of a lot of your choices in, in that there's kind of a debate or an argument saying that, that you're in, in control of far less things than you realize. Uh, and, and I do think there's a lot of, a lot of truth to that. So I think that that's a super fair point and I appreciate you bringing it up. Um, again, I, I want to reiterate though, that, uh, my hat is off to you. I'm not going to take it off cause I'm bald and look like a penis without hair, but, uh, but I do think that, uh, it's, it's amazing what, what you're doing and, and, it's so rare in today's day and age to see the kind of dedication and commitment uh, between spouses that you have with your wife. And I think uh, that, sh that should be commended. But. Well, I think I appreciate that, Mike. And I think we should all keep in perspective uh, what are the things that are going to be with you for your whole life? Like, you know, I think we see so many times guys and, and girls that, make the choice to um, or they choose their career uh, before they choose that person that is their spouse and and that career is freaking over man yeah I, I'm so glad I made the choice that I made yeah because I'm gonna tell you right now man my life is better than anybody else's life listening to this podcast I will vouch for that yeah and that's that's I'm saying that for myself. Yeah. I mean, the life that I have with the woman that I love is better than any Navy SEAL thing that could have been provided to me. Like yeah. it's it is unbelievable. I am so think about that if you're listening to this. Yeah. What's gonna stay with you for the duration of your life? Yeah. Very few things and be dedicated to those things. Yeah. I, no, I, I agree a hundred percent. And I think, uh, I think for, for everybody as an individual, if you can't look inward and say like, I, I have the best life that, that I, I know of, you know, or, or I'm living, you know, the, the life that I'm living now is better than everybody else's. Like if you can't say that, I think you should, you should strive to, to be able to say that, yeah, man. you know, uh, I, I truly do. Cause I feel the same way, you know? Um, and I, and I think, I think you're doing it right. If, if that's how you feel. You know? Yeah. Um, so at what point, um, whether it was in trade ed or, or where did the running bug come from? Because you didn't grow up running. Sounds like you were, you know, middle of the road running wise throughout SEAL training, or at least that wasn't what you were you know, doing. I mean, it's part of the job. But uh, so at what point was it like staring you in the face saying it's time to to run? It was it was toward the very end of my time in the Navy when um when I knew that chapter of my life was about to come to a close and we had, I had lived so long my entire adult life to this point, um, 
in a place that challenged me physically and mentally in so many ways, every sing, almost every single day. I mean, that's almost every single day that you spend in the military doing really any job, I guarantee you, you're being challenged physically and mentally mm-hmm. uh, on some level. And uh, I love that, man. I, I, love, I loved that aspect of being in the teams. And uh, I realized that I, I was going to need something else in my life that challenged me in that way. And so I just saw a advertisement for a 50-mile trail run, and I didn't even think it was humanly possible for <laughs> someone like to run suck. 50 Why don't miles. I try that? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly that was exactly my <laughs> thoughts. And I said, "Man, this this could this could be that thing." You know, I've I've done a lot of running uh, as a SEAL. I'm I'm fit, and uh, I went and tried it. I went and ran that race. And it freaking obliterated me, dude. Yeah. I mean, I didn't train for it. I didn't, I, you know, I was just generally fit. Yeah. And uh, I thought. Typical team guy. I thought, man, <laughs> this, this can be a really cool thing that, that can give me something to strive uh, to do that's going to keep me sharp, uh, that's going to continue to teach me new things about myself um, and give me an opportunity to push into uh, new areas yeah you know yeah and so um when you went through that i'm curious where your mind was during that being obliterated did you finish it oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah i finished uh, uh is that where you learned uh to focus on on the next step or, or was your mind all over the place during that one? Oh no no i i, I learned to focus on the next step definitely yeah. during during, during that race. you know during buds oh I got yeah you. yeah i think that was something that was ingrained in me uh during buds yeah. and um so I utilized, I had, that's the only way that I finished it yeah. is because I, I had all these kind of, kind of tools and, and mental toughness and things that had been ingrained in me, uh, from my career. That's the only way I got through that race. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, yeah, it was, so, I was satisfied, man. Yeah. So, uh, so after that, what was the next one and what, and what was the pipeline training wise going from doing that? And, and what was your next race and in, in the in between well after after i finished that 50 miler it was it was funny because i i didn't do great at it but i, I finished middle of the pack with no training and uh, one of my buddies from the team he actually looked at me and he said man i think you could actually win one of these things and it's funny man it's funny how one little thing someone says to you one little piece of encouragement can kind of change your mindset about what you think you're capable of. Yeah. Uh, and when he said that to me, and, and again, this was somebody that I respected, a very close friend of mine. And um, <laughs> when he said that, I thought, okay, let's get serious and see if we can, if we can really go and do well at one of these. So uh, I ran a few other 50-mile races, maybe two more, <clears throat> just to kind of get used to that type of running and – uh, trained up to run a really difficult 100-miler. My first 100-miler was one of the most difficult 100-milers on the East Coast. It's called the Cruel Jewel. It's 106 miles with 33,000 feet of climbing wow. and uh, and also the same descent. And I went there, placed eighth place. Wow. Uh, that was an international field that year. Runners came from all over the world to compete. And so finishing in that top 10 gave me – even more confidence that maybe what my buddy said was 
was right. And also, that being my first 100-mile race, I got obliterated all over again. It was on a whole nother level than that 50-miler. Like, I ran a fever for two days after that race. Oh. My body was just completely wrecked. And uh, how, uh, how long did that take, 106 miles? That race, in that terrain, I think I ran that in about 20, 26 hours, 26, 27 hours, wow. something like that. All, all these races, the, the time is, is relative to the terrain the races ran in. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the last man standing that you did 38 uh, hours, how many miles was that? 122. 122. Is that the farthest you've gone? That is my farthest distance, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so you get eighth place in the Cruel Jewel at 106 miles. Uh, from a training standpoint, had you brought in any other coaches, consultants, experts, you know, what have you, to, to help you prepare and train from a nutrition standpoint, a, a, a training, you know, regimen standpoint? Or was it all you're, you were just figuring it out on your own? Yeah, I was figuring it out along the way. And, and I think, you know, ha, uh, having, I had a huge advantage um, because of because of the lifestyle that I had been living and, and going through buds. And, you know, you get to really you get to really know your body very well doing that job. Yeah. Uh, you, you know the things you need to pay attention to and you know the things that are just natural naturally just there's you discomfort right mm -hmm. and so that's even how i train to this day is to just listen to my body and um you know i go out for a run in the morning i don't i don't have a plan for how long i'm going to run uh, i see how my body responds to it and it may be a, a eight mile run it may be a 18 mile run and uh, i think for me personally that's the most effective way to train, especially and 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 have longevity. Yeah, um, I could run myself into the ground. I mean, I could come up with a training plan that would run me into the ground, but I want to have longevity in the sport, and so that's how I've chosen to train. And obviously, you you bring you ramp the intensity up when you're training for a specific race, but you ramp ramp the intensity up only for a short period. Yeah. About eight weeks. Eight weeks. Yeah. During especially that eight weeks from a nutrition standpoint, at that point, are you still just rocking ribeyes or are you, are you bringing in a ton of rice and way more carbohydrates? I'm, I'm yeah, I'm eating whatever I want to eat, man. Yeah. I mean, I'll eat uh, ice cream every night, rice, bread, ton, yeah. tons of steak. You're going to Sizzler. Yeah, man. I'm going <laughs> to eat whatever my body is craving yeah. during that training cycle. Because yeah. those weeks when you're really ramping it up, you know, you're putting in upwards of uh you know some athletes will put in 160 miles of training in a week a big week for me would be 80 maybe 90 miles in a week yeah wow so um from a, a gear standpoint is there a i see you got no bulls on i think you have hokas on over there right is uh is there a brand of footwear that you kind of swear by for for these races is it terrain dependent it is terrain dependent i think overall hoka makes the best yeah. running shoe out there See, i'm flat-footed as fuck and i can't wear them like they make me feel like i'm walking on uh like foot like nerf footballs that's what it feels oh, yeah. like yeah in a, in a horrible way like i feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm tipping over and rolling my fucking ankle like i've tried them a few times and I, I can't i can't wear them like i have to wear more of the chuck taylor style like yeah flat foot shoes you know like yeah. that's what i'm wearing right now they're like flat they're four flat feet or whatever or they're supposed to mimic being barefoot basically but i can't wear those barefoot shoes those things feels like 
socks that are all between your toes. Oh yeah, man. No, nah, I think that I don't think that's good for your feet. Yeah. I think shoes. Yeah, shoes are very specific to the athlete. Yeah. It's the same with training. It's the same with nutrition. Yeah. Uh, it's all. It's it's all. You you have to put in the time. Yeah. To be able to compete because you got to put in the time because you got to know what your body needs, what it likes in terms of nutrition, in terms of food, in terms yeah. of training load. There's no substitute for it. Yeah. yeah. I wish there was a secret. Um, everybody wants the secret. There is the secret is there is no secret yeah. other than putting in the time to figure all that stuff out. Yeah. For yeah. For yourself. No, it's that's spot on. I, I love it. Um, during your races, what do you eat and drink? On, during my race, I try to stick mainly to fruit. Really? Yeah, I changed my diet completely from what I would be eating every day. Uh, running those distances cre- can create s- extreme stomach distress. It's usually the number one thing that takes people out of an ultramarathon is their stomach stops working. And if you can imagine your stomach bouncing up and down inside of you for 24 28, 30 hours, it makes total sense. Yeah. Um, so I found for me, fruit gives me the energy that I need. It's easily digestible. It doesn't upset my stomach. Uh, and then for a little fat and protein, I'll put some peanut butter in there and try to keep it very, very simple, man. Yeah. What uh, what fruits? Is it all kinds or are there Yeah. I like melons, cantaloupe, watermelon. Uh, those are probably my two favorite, but I'll eat berries and stuff like that too, yeah. blueberries and yeah. Is there a um, a volume that you're going through with that stuff? Like in, in the last man standing, like is it like how much fruit did you go through during that race? And in a lot, yeah. a lot in, in terms of calorie intake. Uh, again, everyone is every athlete's different. For me, I'm I'm trying to hit an absolute minimum of 100 calories per hour. Yeah. Um, some of those hours, I'll I'll take in upwards of four or five hundred calories, uh, and usually. I will also have one of the little gels on me, like a goo gel yeah. or something, because uh, if you're out there on the trail, sometimes you know your blood sugar will pr- plummet, uh, and you need something to bring you out of the hole real quick. Yeah. So that's kind of like my emergency. That's like my nitrous. Yeah. You know, if I need yeah. to get out of the hole, <laughs> you know, it's got a little caffeine in it, so that'll that'll allow me to get out of that hole and get to where I can get some some food with some substance to it, yeah. you know. Do you uh do you take caffeine normally? Like day Oh, dude, I'm a coffee. Coffee. I'm man. a coffee man, yeah. brother. Yeah. Um I tell you the the ultra running uh niche if you want to call it that is uh, is fascinating, man. It's uh it's it's really really fascinating. I've known a few guys that have done done a, a few of them, but um, you know, I think it just seems like you're you're at a whole different level with uh, with that stuff. It's, well, the, uh, the most valuable thing about it is it's not really for me. It's not the running aspect. I mean, the the competitive nature of it is fun, but the most valuable thing about it is what it what it shows you about yourself, and like it gives you the opportunity to learn patience. Uh, it gives you the opportunity to force yourself to stay present. It gives you the opportunity to be deliberate about your actions, your diet, your um, the words that are coming out of your mouth. Uh, all those things influence your success, and all those things also influence your success in life. Yeah. And so that, to me, is is the most valuable aspect of ultra running. And I think every human being should run a hundred mile race 
just once in their life. Yeah. Because you get to really go to a new place. And if you don't do the right things in terms of mindset, uh, you're not going to make it through. Yeah. And, and that's okay if you don't make it through, because if you fail, as long as you give yourself a good after actions report, you're going to get a lot of lessons from that. Yeah. So, you know, ultra running prepares me for what we do in business. It prepares me for what I go through in my marriage. It prepares me for everything else in life, because when life throws stuff at you, there's consequences if you fail. Yeah. Ultra running, there's no consequence if you fail. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I see a lot of, uh, and I know this is kind of overdone within the veteran podcast space, but there are a lot of similarities with jujitsu that way where, you know, there's so much more to it than just folding laundry with somebody else in it, right? Is yeah. It, is it there, there are a lot of life, life lessons with patience, with consequences, with being singularly focused, being mindful of what you do outside of it, you know, what you eat, what you consume, not just food wise, but, you know, entertainment, who you hang out with. I mean, that there are so many facets of it that translate uh, and correlate to to everything else that you do in in a similar way, which is, uh, which is interesting. But in uh, the teams, we said train like you fight, right? So in life, life itself is the fight. Yeah. The, 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 the hard thing that you choose to engage on your own time, that's the training. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what uh, you you mentioned business? So, what do you do for for employment or or job wise, business wise? So, our company is called Three of Seven Project. Um, we're a podcast. Uh, we we have a YouTube channel, um, and the main core of what we do is training. So, we have developed some pretty cool missions mm-hmm. uh, where we they're application only, so you can apply. And I go through all the applications and select uh, individuals to form small teams. And we take these small teams of eight individuals out into the wilderness. And we learn, we teach all the hard skills that it takes to be out in that environment. Um, Land nav, filtration, water, you know, shelter, all, all that stuff. We teach all that stuff right right off the bat. And then um, we move through this wilderness environment over the course of three days. And uh, the team has objectives uh, and they have to learn how to lead, how to communicate, um, how to be led, how to serve one another. Uh, it gets hard. And the great thing about that environment that we take people into is I don't have to manufacture the stress. The environment manufactures the stress and I get to sit back and me and my team, we get to critique individuals and critique the team uh, on how to become more efficient. And it's been pretty amazing to uh, over the last two years, we've probably trained a couple hundred people. And when you watch a group of eight strangers become a single organism, within the span of three days, it's very, very rewarding, man. Yeah. Very rewarding. Um, can you share what the uh, algorithm or criteria is and how you select? Yeah. Usually for those for those specific courses, the basic course, there's another one called the Proving Ground that we run. Uh, usually I'm, I'm looking for people who are already, who are in a position in life where they have influence over other people. 
So whether it's their fathers uh, or mothers or their business owners, uh, I want to spend time with people who are going to take what they learn and, uh, and pass it on to the people they have influence over. You see a lot of people who want to come and train for, again, selfish reasons so that they can say they did this cool thing and kind of just hang it on the wall and tell stories about it. Mm-hmm. That's not really the type of people that I want to spend time with. Yeah. Yeah. So is it, uh, I mean, it's an application process. So is it something where like from a financial standpoint, they, they pay to do that or is it like a, a nonprofit kind of thing? Or Yeah, what? no, they pay, they pay to do that. Yeah. Most of the people that, that we work with are, you know, successful people, yeah. um, entrepreneurs, uh, people that have been successful in life. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, they, they pay to do that. Okay. Yep. Um, and is, is there like a, a washout rate as far as like X number of people apply and you only take so many, like, is, is it your chances of, of getting selected to be, be accepted to go through this program? Um, uh, slim. It's pretty slim. I mean, I would say, you know, this year, we're, we're running about 10 courses. That's eight people per course. Uh, so that's 80 people. We've probably gotten well over 500 applications. Oh, okay. Wow. So, yeah, I, I really come through them, man. I mean, I, I take, obviously, all of our our time is valuable. Yeah. The, the customer, the, the team member, their time is valuable. My time is valuable. So uh, we're really selective yeah. about, about who gets into these programs. And you want to spend time with the right people. Yeah. So. Oh, that's awesome. That's uh, that's really neat. What uh, what gave you the idea for that, or where did that that spark come from? So when I was in trade at man, I realized how much of a passion I had for teaching. I, I probably learned more in a year at trade at than I learned in my entire career as a as a shooter. Yeah, uh, and I learned so much. But I also was taught how to teach. Mm-hmm. And I realized how powerful that tool was. And uh, I became real passionate about it. So, you know, I, I, I love teaching. And I just thought, how can I take the skills that, that I've learned, the skills that I've been given, how can I come up with, a, with this mission or this envir- create this environment where I can pass it along to people that matter? Yeah. Um, so that's how we came up with it. And, and dude, it's, it's expanding. Like we have this year, we're running a uh, more of an advanced mission for the people who have already graduated kind of the entry level deal. We're doing a 140 mile long unsupported kayak oh, wow. down the largest undammed waterway on the East coast from the headwaters all the way to the coast. That's awesome. Uh, so that'll be 10 days, you know, living out of a kayak and yeah. And uh, it's just going to be awesome, dude. Yeah. So, so are are you in on? I mean, you'll be on that trip, I assume. Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm. I, I go on all the trips. Yeah. Um, so all all ten courses, you're on all ten of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, it keeps me busy. Yeah, and what? Uh, it's you and and several other people, or yeah, it's uh, me, my brother, and we have two full time team members that help us oh, okay. at three or seven projects. So we all instruct, and um, we actually now have uh, it's. It's cool. It's so awesome, man. It's such a blessing how it's it's grown. We actually have now students that have went through, you know, all of our training courses, uh, including like an advanced alpine mountaineering mission that we run. 
And, and now they come back as instructors. Oh, that's cool. And so we're now teaching them how to teach. Yeah. And uh, it's just compounding, man. Yeah, that's it's, really cool. It's awesome. Yeah, that's badass. Where does three of seven come from? Three of seven is, the three comes from the concept of all humans being composed of a body, soul, and spirit. So physical body, our mind, will, and emotions, and then our spirit, which is our ability to um, to connect or even just contemplate a creator, right? Uh, it's hard to put your finger on that on the spirit, although it's probably the most important aspect, I think, of us as humans. Yeah. And so that's where the three comes from. The number seven is the biblical number for completion. And so we thought, you know, our objective is to help people complete themselves. And how do we do that? We have to focus on all three of these aspects of the individual um, that we're training. And everything that we do, it incorporates all. It's going to be physically hard. It's going to be mentally tough. You're going to be challenged mentally. And we're going to engage you spiritually too. Yeah. And I, that's, that's what it means. Yeah. I, I love when there is a story behind a, a name that way. You know, a lot of times it's like Ajax plumbing. Well, there's two, there, you know, it starts with an A, so it's first in the fucking phone book. You know, it's like I, I like yeah. that you, there's a lot of thought put into, into the name. I will say that it gives me the idea if it's three of seven, if I came out with like a wilderness survival school and I call it not quite 50% project, can we do that? Is that, is that a copyright infringement? You go for it, brother. Yeah, I'm doing it. I, I I'm would love it. to, I would yeah. love to know you were out there yeah. training people, uh, Mike. No, no, that's all. That's all you, my man. I appreciate it. Uh, anything else that you want to uh, discuss or bring up before we wrap up here? Uh, no, man, that was a lot of, a lot, a lot of stuff. I guess the last, the last resource that we have, I know we talked a lot about running on this podcast. Um, uh, me and my, me and my hand over there, we, we filmed a really awesome 10 part, uh, running, running series online. If any of you guys are interested in getting into running, learning how to run, learning what gear to buy, learning how to eat and, and the very detailed stuff of, of how to get into the sport. Um, that's online. We call it enough said running. Okay. Enough said running.com. That's a really cool resource we built out. But, um, no, other than that, Mike, uh, interesting conversation, man. Interesting Amen. conversation. But yeah. well, that, That's always the goal with, uh, with, with every mic drop is for people to be, uh, uh, entertained and, and for it to be interesting. So yeah. I hope, I hope we accomplish that, but, uh, I can't thank you enough again for taking time out of your schedule, uh, to be here. Cause as you said, and I couldn't agree more, uh, time is valuable and, and I appreciate you sharing yours with, with me and with us today. So it's an honor and a pleasure, Mike. I really love what you're doing, brother. Thank and you. I'll, I'll be listening. All right. I look forward to it. Uh, <clears throat> we will put all of his, <clears throat> where you can find him at and contact and all that in the uh, description uh, show notes area. And uh, just for, for the audio only viewers, if you can just mention where you can find you at both website and, and any social media handles you want to want to mention. It's just three of seven project.com. That's the number three of the number seven project.com. Everything's linked there. Yeah. And uh, Instagram is that the social media profile? It's easiest to. Yeah. Yeah. It'll all be linked right okay. there on the okay. website. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, for the listener, I hope you uh, appreciate and enjoyed uh, Chad's time here. I know I sure did. Uh, I can't thank you guys enough for continuing to tune in show after show uh, to give me the, the honor to be able to, to sit at this desk and, and host amazing guests such as Chad. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't, you know, you get to choke yourself. And until next time, this is Mike Drop.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.